Hello, David Scales here for Surf Splendor. I've got a gargantuan episode for you today. This one has been in the works for some time, but the gift of quarantine is probably the reason why I was able to actually execute my plan here. There is probably 40 hours wrapped up in this episode. So aside from the travel and conducting the interviews themselves, which in the case of this episode are probably um, twice the length, the raw interviews themselves are twice the length of what you will hear on air. In addition to all that stuff, there's also a lot of prep, editing, publishing, back-end tech related to all of that stuff. And it's been really kind of interesting that through a lot of the planning for this episode and then releasing this series amidst this COVID-19 crisis, I have found it increasingly important and prudent to not entirely rely on the surf industry for our support as a podcast and as a network. And that's actually how we designed this business um, once it became a business a couple of years ago after doing it for free for four years. The goal was to set it up in such a way that we didn't fall into the same pitfall that legacy surf media found itself in, where their editorial was being influenced by the companies who bought advertising. So as our former guest, Jamie Brissick, worded it in my episode with him, When he took the position as editor-in-chief at a surf magazine, he said that he was disillusioned by the reality that his job was simply writing glorified press releases for the brands. So we, of course, love the surf industry and want to support it and want to work with brands uh, that we like and that we choose to work with. But we made the decision to open up a donation platform where this show would remain free but you, the listener, could contribute however you saw fit, and then we would just grow the business and the shows to the degree that the donations came in. So more donations would mean more episodes from more locations with nicer equipment, and this business model also would allow us to um, the freedom to select our sponsors to pick businesses and products in surfing that we love and believe in and then be able to share those relationships with you, usually with a promo code or a discount or something that will also benefit you. So that has worked out well. And um, it's, again, become increasingly obvious to me amidst this COVID crisis. So as a thank you for those of you who make a financial contribution to the show, we are going to give away a surfboard on May 1st. This board is being donated by Timponi Surfboards on Maui. Jeff Timponi will build the board custom to your specs. We're going to do a bat tail design, and he'll explain that in next week's episode. The board will be made in his Maui Leaf Light construction in honor of Earth Day on April 22nd this month. So Maui Leaf Light consists of a recycled EPS or a solar-made polyurethane surfboard blank laminated in hemp cloth with a bio-based resin. That's the short version. Again, Jeff will explain this in more detail later, but I have one of these Maui Leaf Light boards and I've been riding it for about a year and a half now. I love it, so I'm thrilled to get other people on these boards. You can see more about the board and enter to win by making a donation of any size on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. There is a PayPal button where you can do a one-time donation or consider setting up a monthly recurring donation of $5. We also have Venmo. You can find us at Surf Splendor on Venmo if that is easier for you. 
all donors in the month of April will be entered to win, and then we will select one random name on May 1st as the winner. The only cost that the winner will incur is uh, potential shipping costs if you're not on Maui, which I presume most of you listening are not. So shipping from Maui to you will be your only cost, and you'll have a brand new custom-built surfboard. So thank you for all of your support always throughout the year. And um, we owe another huge thanks, by the way, to uh, one specific brand that has made this entire series of Kauai shows possible, and that's the Aloha Exchange. If you've heard episode 210 of Surf Splendor, then you'll know about the Aloha Exchange and its co-founder, Jamie Dilberg. The Aloha Exchange is a surf retailer on Kauai with locations in Kalaheo and Kilauea. I'll explain their role in this series at the end of the show, but for now, just know that despite their own hardship that they are enduring due to the halted travel to Kauai, they are donating $5 from every online order to a local family on Kauai who is out of work due to the COVID crisis. So use promo code Kauai. There's no spaces, no capitals, just the promo code Kauai on the AlohaExchange.com. You'll save $5 on your order, and then $5 from your order will be donated to a local family in need. Promo code Kauai for use on TheAlohaExchange.com. Thank you for that. On to today's show. Today's episode features three interview subjects. It's a bit of a divergence from all previous 316 past episodes of Surf Splendor. The common denominator among today's guests is that they are all board builders who live on the Garden Isle of Kauai. And in fact, every guest for the next two months on Surf Splendor shares the same distinction of living on Kauai. Today, we have former pro surfer and board builder Max Medeiros. His family has been on Kauai for generations, as has our first guest on today's show, which is Bronson Lovell, who grew up surfing competitively and now runs a CrossFit gym with classes for the local youth. Our third and final guest is going to be Lance Ebert, and he is um, a transplant from Santa Cruz, California. He's established himself as one of the best, if not the best, laminator on Kauai, which puts him in high demand for this small community of board builders. He also shapes his own boards um, that are really sought after, but his laminations are what he is best known for and why shapers from around the world will fly lands out to laminate their boards. So we'll get into those guys in just a bit, but first, why spend months on this podcast exploring Kauai? The short answer is simply that Kauai is special to me. And it's been special to me prior to uh, discovering surfing when I was 12 years old. My great-grandparents, whom I never met, were of Portuguese descent, but they were born on Kauai. My great-grandfather in 1902 in Hanalei, and my great-grandmother in 1908 in Kaloa, which is where I stayed on this trip and recorded this series of episodes. 
Kaloa in 2020 still has a few relics from the era when my grandparents lived here, mostly remnants from sugar plantations. In fact, the very first successful sugar plantation in all of Hawaii was started in Kaloa in 1835. And that was the precise reason why my family migrated there from Portugal was to work the sugarcane. Kaloa is on the south side of the island, just inland from Poipu, which is a, a likely spot that you might have vacationed. It's easiest to refer to locations and surf spots in Kauai by geographical region. Of course, any state or island is divided by regions, but this is particularly useful in Kauai. Each region has its own weather patterns and has developed its own distinct culture, of which there are also subcultures. That's to say, everybody refers to the South, but it's not just the South. Poipu is a reference point for the South, but Kaloa residents would probably prefer a Kaloa distinction, and perhaps vice versa for Poipu residents. But let's start with the far northwest of Kauai. The Nepali coast is completely undeveloped. No roads mainly accessible by boat, hiking, or most commonly, it's just surveyed by helicopters. In casual conversation, it's mistakenly referred to as uninhabited, but in fact, the first settlers on the Nepali coast were Polynesian navigators around 1200 AD. Tahitian migrants followed, whose impact became the basis of Hawaiian society, and eventually, influenced by Captain Cook's arrival in 1778, Westerners arrived, and with them, brought disease that infected and killed many of these remote Hawaiian tribes. Missionaries began landing in Kauai in the 1820s, and soon thereafter, nudity, hula, and other Hawaiian traditions were banned. This began a tradition of a steady decline of Hawaiian culture, and eventually, cattle ranching and the lure of an easier life drew many away from the remote Nepali. The last known native Hawaiians to live along the Nepali were sighted at the beginning of the 20th century. The center of the north coast of Kauai is the town, the pier, and the crescent cove of Hanalei. This is the home of Andy and Bruce Irons and of Bethany Hamilton, the longtime home of the unrelated Laird Hamilton and his father Billy, who will be featured on an upcoming episode. Hanalei has been well populated since ancient times and was a regular vacation spot for many members of the royal Hawaiian family in the 1800s, starting with King Kamehameha II, and then the third, and then the fourth, whose son, Prince Albert, inspired a local plantation owner to name his growing estate Princeville. As you drive down the hill from the now ritzy Princeville, you'll see the main reason for much of Hanalei's success the large swath of low-lying flat land that sits between the impressive mountain landscape that is ridiculously fertile, supplying a bounty of taro, bananas, sweet potato, coconuts, coffee, tobacco, cotton, rice, sugarcane, citrus, pineapples, and even leafy greens and vegetables. The region in and around Hanalei is unique now because it's home to some of the most expensive real estate in all of Hawaii. This is where Mark Zuckerberg became the face of neo-colonialism when he purchased his $100 million, 750-acre property. But Hanalei is also unique because despite that, it maintains a hippie and vagabond culture that many of the visiting surfers brought over in the late 60s and on through the 70s and into the 80s. There's one main road that wraps its way around most of Kauai, and as it heads south, 
out of Hanalei through Princeville, it passes a series of villages or maybe just neighborhoods. One of them is Anahola, which we'll dive into later with our first guest, Bronson Lovell. These neighborhoods are interesting because they make up most of the statistics when you hear about everything non-tourist related on Kauai. As I've explained, with nudity being banned by visiting missionaries in the 1800s, in the 2000 teens, the issue had really become an influx of wealthy temporary residents buying up properties at ever-increasing prices, driving property values up, and driving out a lot of younger people who are hoping to buy in the neighborhoods where they grew up, but also raising property taxes for those who already own property in the county. Vacation properties in Hawaii have long been purchased by millionaires, but this last decade on Kauai has seen an influx of billionaires with a B. So Neil Norman, the number one real estate broker on Kauai, said that on Maui and the Big Island, it's, quote, been more musicians, actors, directors, and celebrities. But here on Kauai in the last few years, it's been tech. Our traditional clients are used to exposure, but tech people didn't go into show business. They're generally more introverted and they want their privacy, end quote. Just as an interesting side note, Larry Ellison, the co-founder of Oracle, owns 98% of the island of Lanai. It's the sixth largest island in the Hawaiian island chain. The state and 3,100 individual homeowners own the remaining 2% of the island. Ellison has stated that his intentions are to improve the island's infrastructure and create an environmentally friendly agriculture industry. This is in line with other investments he's made in renewable energy. He has spent half a billion dollars remodeling the Four Seasons Lanai at Monolay Bay. He built a new water filtration system in Lanai City, and he announced the building of a hydroponic farming venture. Anyway, back to Kauai. Along with these large investments in residential real estate development, Kauai has also seen a tremendous influx of corporate commercial development. On the interior of the island, that exists in the form of large agricultural industry. We'll hear from Dustin Barca regarding Monsanto and Dow and other GMOs doing seed testing here in a future episode. But aside from the inland, along the coast, you have everything from Marriott's to Hyatt's to Walmart to Costco to KFC and McDonald's. And while all of this influx of corporate spending stimulates the local and state economy, and while it provides jobs for Native Hawaiians, it also further erases Hawaiian culture. In some instances, farmers who are completely self-sustaining for generations are now buying seeds that are patented by a corporation genetically designed for one life cycle so that the farmer needs to buy new seeds each year. Seeds that are genetically dependent upon a pesticide that is also owned and sold by the corporation selling the seed. And imagine, by the way, the rift between a disgruntled farmer whose neighbor or family member goes to work for that corporate ag company, who, by the way, pays well and provides benefits. And that one little scenario kind of illustrates the greater point here. That is the divide between a loss of culture and the small incremental trades made for comfort, speed, ease, or potential economic prosperity. And this happens at the tourism level too. In retail or hospitality, 
many native Hawaiians have been excited at the opportunity to work for a company like Costco or Starbucks, who offer benefits to part-time employees and starting wages of 15 bucks an hour. And the tourist is happy to see Starbucks and get their familiar jolt of Costa Rican-grown caffeine. So everything in that exchange seems copacetic. And it probably is. But over time, and we're well into that reflection point, you can very obviously see an erosion, an erosion of a culture. And that's not to say that going to a traditional luau should be your priority stop on your next Hawaiian vacation, but there are some modern updates that incorporate tradition in ways that support local jobs and celebrate the native culture. Aloha Roastery, for example, was my morning coffee stop. They have locations in Lahui and Kaloa. They serve locally grown coffee and they roast it on site. Kauai Juice Co. was perhaps my favorite stop every day with locations around the island. Um, and they make dozens of juices, all from locally grown fruits and vegetables. Employment and housing will be a main part of my discussion with County Councilman Luke Evslin on an upcoming episode. He was born on Kauai. He's a small business owner of Kamanu Composites. They build top-performing racing canoes over on Oahu rather than Kauai for reasons that he will explain. So lots to unpack here as these are really complex issues, but politics plays an essential role in designing solutions. That said, an important news story broke the week prior to my arrival on the island that sounded like a storyline from Breaking Bad. Authorities from multiple agencies arrested County Councilman Arthur Brune and 11 other suspects in what the Kauai Police Department described as a, quote, massive island-wide drug sweep, end quote. Councilman Brune, who was the subject of a long-term investigation, threw a bag of methamphetamine from his vehicle as he fled the scene after crashing into a police officer's vehicle. The arrest came as a result of a federal indictment filed on February 13th, charging Brune as the head of a major drug trafficking organization while he was the sitting member of the Kauai County Council and the vice chair of its Public Safety and Human Services Committee. Those of us in the surf world are well aware that our three-time world champ Andy Irons from Hanalei lost his life due to his struggles with drug addiction. The incidence of drug sales and usage on Kauai does not only afflict low-income derelicts. The problem is systemic and it is pervasive. It afflicts world-class athletes, politicians, leaders, mothers, business owners. TheGardenIsland.com reported that in 2017, the suicide rate had doubled over 2016. Victims ranged in age from 20 to 88 years old. 18 were men, 8 were women. While 26 people died from suicide that year, 125 people were hospitalized after failed attempts at suicide. This rate mirrors the rising rates of the opioid epidemic, which by the way also led to an increase in accidental overdoses. Pregnancy-associated mortality has also more than doubled in the past decade on Kauai. And these are all the stats that I referenced strictly represent the local population, not the 1.5 million tourists that visit each year. So that was my goal with this podcast series, to hear from the local residents on Kauai. I love the island, so my natural inclination was to learn more about it, 
more beyond my surf experience, more beyond what my grandfather told me about growing up there, and more beyond what these stats suggest. So I started where I often do with this podcast, and that's by talking to board builders, of which we have three on today's episode. So despite this being my starting point, it's not the main point. We mainly discuss issues that I've outlined in this introduction, and I didn't get to interview everybody that I wanted in this podcast series, but I got most of them. And I tried to get a cross-section of people to represent a variety of experiences and worldviews. So I'll interview native Hawaiians, recent transplants, old transplants, pro surfers, underground chargers, Hollywood stuntmen, politicians, local activists. The guest list, which I'll roll out each Wednesday in the coming months, includes board builder Mark Sousen, also known as Papa Sao, Jeff Hackman, Dustin Barca, Luke Eslin, Terry Chung, and Billy Hamilton. Today, we'll start with a man named Bronson Lovell. Bronson is from Anahola, a sign I've driven past many times. Along the road that wraps around the island, you'll pass many of these signs signifying small towns or little neighborhoods just off the highway, either up in the hills or down in the narrow strip between the road and the ocean. Anahola doesn't have any stores nor restaurants. It's strictly residential. That is, aside from Bronson's CrossFit gym, where we recorded this episode, and where he hosts free classes for Anahola residences, and where he mentors local youth. Carry on like some strong beautiful stranger. I'm not even sure where I got the name Bronson. From. Okay. <laughs> my dad's Kiala. My, my mom's uh, Carol. Okay. I have no idea, but I, my, my dad's pretty dark. So if you look up the name, it's a son of a black skin. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. So my dad's a really dark Hawaiian. So that that's, could be it. That's funny. Yeah. Um, it's a good name. Strong it's a name I don't. Name. Totally. But I don't hear it very often. Charlie Bronson. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is that what everybody says? Yeah. Um, where's your mom? Was your mom from here too? Yes. Okay. Both parents are from Kauai. Uh, my grandparents are from the Big Island. And uh, my, my dad's, that's my mom's parents. And my dad's parents are right from here, from Kauai. Holy cow. Amazing. Yeah. Where'd you grow up on the island? I grew up right here. Really? Right here. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this, you know, this place has been in my family for, Jesus, I don't even know how long. This exact property? This whole place. This is ours. Oh, okay. I mean, we, I just grew up in the village. This Amazing. is all I ever knew. Crazy. <laughs> I come from a full-on fishing family. Okay. Back in the day, this was like the, it's called the village. It was uh, one of the last old Hawaiian fishing villages. Mm. And uh, even when we were young, this place was still thriving with fishing. So a lot has changed. Uh, less so, though, than other areas like Princeville. And, uh, like, I had never been to this little zone before. Uh-huh until earlier this week but it's almost like going back in time a little bit you know like it feels kind of like old Kauai probably yeah you know I mean it's just like probably like you know Hanalei back in the day yeah exactly yeah yeah but still for me you know growing up in here a lot has changed for me anyway not as drastic on the outside but still a lot has changed um are it seems like a lot of like local families or natives have been displaced 
from the homes just because property taxes and everything like that. How has your family been able to maintain and have your neighbors changed over the years? Yes, see, uh, in an area like this, you, you gotta pretty much be Hawaiian to live in here to begin with. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, but uh, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of the old timers, what it, what had happened is after they passed on, a lot of the families sold because we we're so close to the beach, you know. So all the properties on here are worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So that all contributed to 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 the big change here in Anaholo. Right. Um, somebody was telling me too, just that like when the new obviously new people buy and pay premiums for the land obviously it drives tax rates up for everybody else yes so well, that makes it challenging obviously. yeah well it we are kind of like exempt from all of that down well, here. are you really yes oh, okay. yeah yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't really affect doesn't really affect me okay but uh you know what i mean if i was to for say the people down on the beach because they bought that they didn't originally own that property it affects those people you know their land taxes on the beach are skyrocket gotcha but it doesn't affect me gotcha Growing up, what is A, education like for you? How are the public schools? And then B, like economic opportunities when you were a kid? What were your options? Schools here, man. I come from, I graduated from Kapa'a School. Okay. And, uh, you know, there's only three schools at the time. And that was one of them. And it was a rough place, man, you know. Was it? <laughs> there weren't much learning going on in that school. It's so many crazy things happen you know like what i mean i was on beach boy you know what i mean the last thing i was gonna do is stay in school when the waves is really good with surfers yeah. we we i mean i wouldn't say education was top notch here at the time it was just crazy a lot of people the school was crazy yeah <laughs> it was chaos so <laughs> do the teachers even enforce no oh, okay. no one even really enforce okay no you know the problem with Kauai is everyone's related right and at, at the time there you know i mean that's someone's auntie's uncle and you kind of pretty much did what you wanted right i you know for me i got i was fortunate my my dad was a heavy equipment operator who at the time you know he made he made he made he made really good money and, and to get into the operators union was something like a, a family deal so for me i got lucky my dad my grandpa was an operator so i kind of i got a really good job but okay. i cannot say the same for a lot of my friends what are the options economically when you're growing up i i tell you straight to be honest dealing drugs right <laughs> dealing drugs is the prime breadwinner probably for a lot of local families yeah and and that's true man that's there's not too many opportunities at the time when i was growing up right what year what era was that like the in 80s? the 90s okay yeah so when were you born uh i was born 70 72 72 okay so 1990 in the 90s was kind of when i realized you know i mean i was in high school yeah and for that time man yeah i didn't see a lot of opportunity for my a lot of my friends a lot of a lot of them died of suicide you know really yes due to like depression probably from drugs yeah a lot of drugs yeah were you able to avoid that stuff no we all fell victim you know did you oh yeah we all fell victim at a very young age we were running you know i mean we were surfing there was the whole just carrying the world, you know, yeah. partying. Like yeah. I said, I, you know, I, mean, I graduated from Kapa'a school. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we all grew up surfing. I grew up surfing contests and all of that stuff. And yeah. even back when I was a, a kid, all of that was taking place, you know. Right. We were being raised by 
I remember going to Oahu for states, and we were just chaperoned by people party. You know, it was just a right. normal thing, wasn't it? Totally. Wasn't like you know, what I mean, I saw when I looked at it, it wasn't like I was like, oh, it was right. just normal to me. I know. Yeah, it's wild. At the risk of spoiling the ending here, Bronson has completely kicked substance use and now devotes much of his life to sharing health and wellness with the youth who is growing up in the same community he and his parents grew up in. He had the unique benefit of a secure, unionized, well-paying career path following his father's as a heavy machine operator. But that money also became the fuel for all the vice that he was exposed to and that was commonplace on this small island in the 90s, and still is to some degree. I asked Bronson how and why he was able to escape addiction's grasp that claimed so many of his peers. There's a lot of things, you know. I, I really hit some dark moments in my life. Did you? Yes. And even though, you know what I mean, and for me, even though I had the, I had a really good job and I was working every day, also I don't, for me, there was a downside to all of that. You mean right out of high school, like I kind of had this job, you know, and I remember bringing home, like back then, I had $1,000 a week at the time there. And what do you think a guy in his 20s going to do with $1,000 a week in his pocket? I partied like a rock star, you know? Yeah. I mean, I drank every, we drank every night after work. Really? Yeah, freaking left the bar at 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. A lot of times just fucking drove right back to the job site. <laughs> well, that's the thing, if you don't have consequence, then like I, the best definition I've ever heard for addiction was it's um, defined by consequence. So like some people could drink a six pack of beer, like a 12 pack of beer yes. and it doesn't bother them. They get up in the morning, they go to work and they live their lives and their kids love them. Some people drink a 12 pack and then they're beating their wife and they miss work and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you can't define addiction by the volume uh -huh. of alcohol or the quantity. It's defined by consequence. So if you're suffering consequence but still doing the thing uh -huh. then that's addiction your yes. life's falling apart but you need the thing so was there a moment for you where you felt like it was in control because if you're still going to work then no big deal you know oh yeah it was just but i i think like physically i hit a breaking point you know i was just like i was just like so run down i mean i was run down okay <laughs> even though i was at work every day i wasn't at work you know my mind was somewhere else and I, eh, one of my, one of my really really good friends at the time, that I was with the, that day, he shot himself. And uh, after we left each other, he shot himself that night. Shot himself like yeah, in shot shot him, killed suicide? himself. Yes. Are you kidding? And uh, he was basically pretty much my turning point. We're like best friends. We all work together. And uh. So that happened, and I'm in the process of getting, you know, getting my shit together. And uh, by the time Kai, Kai, my wife has already left me. She takes the kids, <clears throat> and uh, so I, I started, you know, I mean, I started to do the steps. I started to like get my shit together, man. And then my boss, my boss, ends up getting murdered a month later. <laughs> Hey, Dude, like drug. Oh, drug. Dealing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I talked to him like two days before he got killed, and he told me everything. So he loses his life, and that's my whole, you know, man. My, my yeah. crew is like going, falling apart now. Right. So I'm just like, dude, I need to get my shit together, and I just did it. When um, 
your buddy committed suicide, did you know what was going on in his no. life? Did he discuss anything with you? Uh-uh. Okay. Just like out of the blues, like he left early that day, I shook his hand, it's like I see you tomorrow. Wow. Does anybody discuss things in the, this culture? Like, is it okay to discuss your feelings with somebody? Like if you're going through depression or struggling with something? Well, ho- hopefully now, you know what I mean? Hopefully now people do. Okay. But back then, not, not I don't know, not, not with my crew. We never discussed those yeah. things. It's a different era too, but still, you know, if every, you guys are all going through the same experience together and yeah. nobody's discussing it, that's a tragedy. Yeah, it is a tragedy. You know what I mean? To us, it's like, I guess for us, it's, uh, he'll be okay. She'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, we all go to this. Everybody's okay. Right. You know what I mean? You go out drink, you're all happy. I mean, you're at the party and everybody's all good. Nobody knows nothing, you know? Exactly. After the parties, everybody's sleeping. It's not like we're hanging out after the party. Right. So yeah, he was basically literally one of my biggest turning points in getting my shit together. What were some healthy methods for you for making that change? Man, Did you do talk therapy? Life, it is a life for a life. You gotta make an exchange. And what I mean by that is I don't care who you are. If you don't exchange that life or another life, you'll never make it. I don't care what. Yeah, you might make it for a little while, but you won't last. And what I mean by that is, I once I had that, once I decided to get clean, you know what I mean? I went back to jiu-jitsu. I stayed in the gym. I mean, I trained six, seven days a week. You know, to keep myself. Then I kind of separated. And I know this is shitty thing to say. But at the time that I kind of separated myself from my friends, you know, and you know, I mean, some of my friends is that I probably helped get them fucked up, you know, and I sort of like, I distanced myself from everyone, but my family. I just hung out with my family, and it was really rough with me and my family, you know, because of all the shit that I've done. Yeah. But I just was a life for life. You gotta make that exchange. Yeah, jujitsu really 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 saved me something to just dedicate all i dedicated everything yeah i did it for you i mean i went back and it's years then i then uh my good good friend kai borg came and got us one day and he's like oh man you gotta try out this crossfit stuff this thing is good (laughs) crossfit so then you know i mean so then i rode right into crossfit and i never stopped were there any CrossFit gyms around at that point? Yes, one CrossFit gym, Koi CrossFit at the time. Where was that? Right right down the road in Kapal. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, Kai came and got us. You got to try this thing out. And, man, we were hooked. Yeah. And a lot of my friends that were going through the same thing as I was all kind of gravitated to, to CrossFit. It's kind of strange. I don't know why. But, yeah, we really, really, CrossFit is. What do you think it is? See, with, with jiu-jitsu, I'll be honest, or any type of, um, like I train Muay Thai with my really good friend too, but it, it's, it's sort of an aggressive sport, you know what I mean? So, sometimes, I mean, there's sometimes jiu-jitsu, even though you clean, it lights that fire, it still make a lot of trouble. <laughs> so, you know, we were still in that phase, but with CrossFit, it was, it was real humbling. Gotcha. <laughs> it was different, you know. Yeah. The people were different. Okay. Bronson mentioned Kyborg, introducing him to CrossFit. Kyborg is the nickname of Kai Garcia, bestowed on him for his cyborg-like physique, 
also born on Kauai. Kai wasn't only a standout in the water, but he discovered jiu-jitsu in 1993, and a short four years later became the world champ in 1997. Of Kai, Bruce Irons said, quote, He's one of the only guys who can get through to me. Other people will tell me the same thing, but I won't hear it, not until Kai says it, end quote. Kai's unique stature in and out of the water naturally led him into leadership positions. In the late 2000s, he was the figurehead for the Wolf Pack, a gathering of surf and martial art talent that ran not only Kauai, but also the North Shore of Oahu. Kai has been candid and vocal about his own struggles with addiction, and in a 2019 interview with What Youth, when asked what he wanted people to know about him, Kai said, quote, that I'm a God-fearing man, and I'm a good father, husband, and uncle. You don't have to be blood to be family. I try and treat everyone as kind and as evenly as I can nowadays. I still look how I look, and I can't help that. God made me look like this. I can't help my old reputation, but what I can do is control myself and how I treat people. End quote. This next audio clip of Kai is from an interview that he did with Alex Gray in 2012 about his personal struggles with pharmaceuticals. You know, it was just numb. And then I justified it like, hey, pharmacies make it, you can get it from your doctor. You know, it's legal. I went over that invisible line. And once you go over it, you will not come back on your own. You pretty much get to a, a point where it's pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. Where you get up in the morning and you can't even look at yourself in the mirror. You can't look at your wife, you can't look at your kids. You know, you start isolating. But there is a way out, and I'm living proof of it. You know, there's hope, there's solution. We need help in whatever we do. We need that outside influence and in people we trust to help us move forward in our life. Because if, if we just go self-will run riot, we'll run ourselves into the ground. But when I, when I first started getting sober, this guy told me who I really look up to, he's all, you know, Borg, you got to change one thing about your life. I was all, oh, yeah, one? Tell me. He's all, everything. I was like, but he was right. 365 days. One year and one day. Years ago, if you told me I'd be where I am right now, I would have laughed. Because now it's like, I'm at a point where I have all my passions back in life and more. I don't have bad days anymore. I'll have bad moments, but I won't have a bad day. You know, I have to be a role model for everyone who's all tweaked out and shot out over here. But only you can do it. To get clean and sober, you have to do it for you because if you don't do it for you if you're doing it for other outside reasons it ain't gonna work it took me a while to wrap my head around that one telling my boys like oh i need to do it for my wife and my kids and they're like no you need to do it for you and when i finally got it and it clicked i knew what they meant it's unbelievable you know to have the clarity i have i've never had it in my life i'm grateful I'm thankful and I'm grateful in life. And I live in it and I don't forget it. Because as humans, we forget real quick. No matter how far down the road you go, you're still the same distance to the ditch. The bottom line is, it's all about choices in life. You're going to make good ones, you're going to make bad ones. But it's never too late, never too late to turn your life around and become the person you're supposed to be. So did Kyborg get clean prior to you? Yes. Okay. He was, yeah, he was the first one. Okay. And then, you know what I mean, he, he kind of, it's kind of like a big brother, man. He freaking literally helped all of us. He was the first guy to get clean. 
and right everybody kind of like followed it's amazing to see that ripple effect though <laughs> yes. like you don't realize how influential you can be yes. you know in other people's lives like that um through all of that time were you surfing or had you stopped surfing at any point i i kind of i stopped there was a point where it's like 15 years i didn't even go in the water 15 yes oh my gosh did you miss it no i was so fucked up i didn't even care about wow. it wow yeah what's it like now do you surf now or yeah i actually i actually love surfing again okay. so i surf a lot i yeah i found i, I actually i really really love surfing now <laughs> good rediscovered it a little yeah. bit yes good just as kai did for him Bronson has recognized his role as an influencer of others. He's combining his passion for physical and spiritual fitness to make himself and his CrossFit gym available to both the youth and adults in and around Anahola. See, the, the, the gym, this gym right here started, I needed, Anahola is uh, it's a lot of kids down here because of the beach, there's a lot of, you know what I mean? There's a lot of youth. There's a lot of partying. There's a lot of crazy shit that goes on down here. And I was just like, man, in order to reach these kids, I needed something. And the gym was, the gym was, I just popped. I kind of took over this piece of land on the, on the, on the ocean, on the uh, ocean front. No one was using it. One of my old family, family had a church there. Hmm. Well, cleaned the church out, kind of kicked everybody out of there. And I called up my, my really good friend, Aaron Hoff. I was like, man, I gotta do something. So he's like, made a couple phone calls and a couple weeks later, man, things started happening and the gym was born. In the church? In the church. Wow. Yeah, in the church. That's amazing. Yeah. Is it still there? Yeah. Okay. It's just, you know, it's too small to house how many kids we have now. We have like, 30 40 kids so tell me about that tell me about the kids program and kids program and it's uh it's just this free program for the for the youth uh a lot of the kids come from the hawaiian charter school right up the road uh kanui kapono and it was just to give the kids an outlet i mean a lot of the kids here they come from broken families so i thought it was really cool to have something for them to do and it really took off yeah i would imagine <laughs> Um, that's a big investment on your part, though, to provide that service for, uh, free for the kids? Yes. Well, I have coaches, though. Okay. Yeah, so you're not doing it all yourself. It's like a full functioning, <laughs> kind of legit program going on. It's with the Kiala Foundation kind of does the kids program. Okay. So with those people, I mean, they feed the kids. Wow. It's, it's legit, man. It's packed. How do you see that affecting their lives? Oh, huge. I know every one of them. Do you? Yes, I know their parents very well. I know these kids when they're in diapers running around. Yeah. <laughs> Do their parents, you said they're from, a lot of them are from broken homes. Are their parents appreciative? I'm sure they are. Okay. It's like, you mean, kind of like, like a culture that we don't show much feelings here, yeah. you know what I mean? Especially in Anahola. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you see the difference. Oh, right? huge, huge. My whole thing was you save the you save the you save the people you save the land. That was the whole reason behind all of this. Yeah. yeah. And even if families tried, and even if for the families that is that is doing good, that ain't partying, that ain't all fucked up. I mean, they work in two, three jobs to even support, put their roof on the head, and, mm -hmm. and maybe you know what I mean, 
eat some fast food and that's honest man yeah i know some of these kids don't eat they don't even eat lunch they don't have they can't even afford lunch right it's a rough place yeah it's a rough place financially it is a very rough place that fast food that bronson is talking about is reflective of a larger truth which is that while Kauai is increasingly subject to outside influence in the form of endless tourism, corporate chain businesses, and those temporary residents that are purchasing vacation homes, with each bit of newness that comes, it scrubs away a little bit of traditional Hawaiian culture. Bronson celebrates his ancestors by building traditional wave riding equipment, alayas, a round nose, square tail, thin plank of wood, distinct from modern boards because they have no fins. They rely solely on the sharpness of the edges of the board to hold it in the wave's face. These boards have been ridden for thousands of years and in the last 15 years have really started to make a comeback into fashion. I wasn't about to buy a freaking, I wasn't about to buy a board from some freaking Australian, you know what I mean, overseas. <laughs> I was just like, but you know I mean, I was just like, I don't know, I was, I was, I remember I was surfing the Alaya but I wanted to start to make my own alliance. So who'd like, you get it from? The one you were scooter. riding? Scooter. My good, good friend Scooter. Okay, I don't know. <clears throat> he, is, uh, he, owned, uh, he used to own Adrenaline uh, Adrenaline High, one of these surf shops here on Kauai. Okay. Phenomenal steersman uh, for a man surfing canoe. Yeah. Scooter. One of my good friends. Well, anyway, one of the hardest things to get is blanks, you know, for the wood. I didn't really know what kind of wood to use or anything. Well, he helped me out. So from there, I just started surfing the boards. And uh, let me interrupt real quick. Yes. What do you like about surfing the boards? Why Why do you draw to the Elia instead of? It's traditional. It's to perpetuate. You know what I mean? What is lost? It's the sport of kings. That's what our Ali's wrote. You know, that's directly tied to Hawaii. It's something that nobody can take away. That is directly linked. We, you know, my grandfather was an Alaya surfer. Really? Yes, my dad was a surfer, my mom's a surfer. Is there a certain type of wave that you ride it in? I ride them in any conditions. Really? I don't even care. Oh my God. <laughs> I ride the thing any kind of conditions. You still yeah. ride other boards too, though? Oh, yes. Okay. You know, I mean, the thing with the Alaya, though, it's a lot of work. Right. A lot of work paddling that thing around. And you're a big dude, too, yeah. so what size are you riding? Uh, my boards, I believe, is a 5.8. That's tiny. Yes. Oh, my but gosh. But the, the reason for that, the bigger the board, it'll have a slapping effect on the water, and you don't want that. So right. you kind of want it shorter. Yeah. That, I mean, unless you're riding on a really small wave, it doesn't really matter how big the board is. But if you're riding them in some little bit more punchy conditions, you want the board small. Okay. And so what is so challenging about it? You said it's really hard to ride? No, it's just challenging to paddle. Gotcha. <laughs> the board is... Three quarter, three quarter inch thick. You know, it's a piece of ply board. Right. Yeah. Okay. So back to sourcing the wood. What kind of wood do you source? Did you uh, source? Well, I couldn't get. Um, of course, Polonia. I heard about it, but I had no idea how to get it here. So Scooter, the jack of all trades, <laughs> got me some albizias, and albizia is really good. It's one of these trees that grow right here on the island. Okay. So I started making them out of the albizia, you know, practicing. I got some wood and I just kept, kept on practicing. Then finally I got my hands on some polonia. Polonia is super light, very floaty for three quarter inch. 
and I finally got my hands on him and I started shaping as much Elias as I could. Every week, every month I was shaping fiberboards. Whoa. Yes. For actual clients? No, like, I was just like I was just like practicing before I even started to sell boards. Okay. I was just practicing to see what worked. Because I actually got my, my first shape from one of these uh, palm fronts. I laid it on the board and I said, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> I cut the thing out. The template? The template. Was really? Yes. One of, one of these uh, Eureka palms. Amazing. I freaking put the thing on, on a board. I'm like, wow, this looks perfect. I cut that thing out. I sanded it to, <laughs> to how I wanted it. Hilarious. I traced it. I put it on the other side and I got my boards. That's amazing. And to, today, that's the same shape that everybody writes. Really? <laughs> yes. That's funny. Nature kind of knows yes. when it comes to design. You yeah. Know? So, um, so are the, is it single piece of Polonia or are you laminating? No, I, I glue them together. Okay. Um, the Albigias, though, they're all, they're all solid blank boards okay. when I first started shaping. But now, yeah, they're all pieced together. Gotcha. And how do you finish them? Sand. Okay. Sand with, um, uh, there's a different, few different oils, but uh, linseed is quick it's cheap and it it, it holds up the mo the best i think okay out of all of them no resin or anything oh no 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 there's no resin it's just oil gotcha well the hawaiians used to use uh kukui not oil like kamani oh. that's how they used to do them okay but that, that's a lot of work <laughs> how long have you been shaping them well, about a little over five years now nice yes consistently do you put contours in them yes at the bottom yes yeah. sir okay what are the contours i'll show you one of my boards man okay yeah grab it so this is a kind of one. This is it's not done yet, but uh, this is Dustin Barca's board. Oh yeah. yeah. But as you can see, I want yeah, it. it's beautiful. Yeah, this is my boards. Has Barca ridden them yet? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh not this board, but yeah, he read, he's reading my boards. Yeah. I kind of supply his contest with all our liars. Oh, what contest is that? Uh, he has like this um, uh, multiple boards. Like vintage longboard, vintage twin fins, uh, your regular shortboard, and an Alaya division. Oh, nice! So it's called King of the King of the Tree, and uh, it's held at Pine Trees. And uh, whoever has the best score out of riding all of those boards, they win the contest. Amazing! <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I interviewed him the other day too. Oh no way! Yeah. yeah, we had a really good chat. Um, that's epic. So now that you're known for doing these, do you have clients ordering them and stuff? Yes. Little side business? No, yeah. I was doing really good. I kind of stopped because of right now we're booming at work. So I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to take too many orders and then I screw myself up. Yeah. Yeah, we're really busy. Um, do you have a label, like an actual brand name for it? Yeah, it's called All My Kai. All My Kai. Yeah. What's Kai? Uh, All My Kai means my Kai is good. It's, it's a lot of things, but for me, it's all good. Okay, yeah. I got you. Um, do people order them online, or it's all just no. word of mouth, friends uh, and family? Just, I keep it kind of in a state of Hawaii. Uh, I do send boards out, but sometimes it can be a little, it can be drama. Like a couple boards went to Texas and got kind of damaged. So oh, no. I don't want to really deal with that. Gotcha. So it's mostly in Hawaii. Gotcha. What's your ambition for the gym? Oh, it's booming. There's really, I mean, this damn thing was like overnight, bam. Adults class, 
40 people. It's class 30 people. 40 30 people in here? Oh, yeah. We make this place is rocking. Crazy. (laughs) How many classes a week do you do? Only uh, there's uh, Mondays, there's usually only a six o'clock class, except for Tuesday, Wednesday, there's the kids' classes, then the adults. So, yeah, two days, there's one class, one class a day, and a kids' class on Wednesdays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Gotcha. So what's the ambition? Do you want to find a bigger space or like? No, because then it'll come work. <laughs> <laughs> I got so much going on. You know, the, the, the mission is Anahola. That is my focus. My focus is my community. Good. Um, is there regulation against like uh, commercial businesses here? Not for me. Well, right. I mean, you could do this, but like if you wanted to build some actual like gym type structure, would you be allowed to? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because because of because of my nationality, I can do. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's doing it. It's actually really good. It's it's busy. And I've been offered so many times. We became really popular really quick with this gym, especially the way it was started on the whole occupying a piece of property, taking over, kicking out everyone, put a gym in. Yeah. In the first couple of days, had 50 people showing up. Place was going off. Yeah. Right on the beach, right in the church. <laughs> fantasy story. How do the uh, neighbors feel about it? Oh, I'm born and raised here, so you know, I mean, a lot of people a lot of people are my family here, and they were really happy. Good. Really happy. I'm sure they love to see it being used for something productive, too. Yes, yes. Yeah. But also, you know, there's always, because of the HHL and Hawaiian Homes that is also governed in this area, they're totally against me doing it, believe it or not. So kind of like made the gym even more popular. <laughs> Which part are they against? DHSL, just to clarify, is Hawaiian Homes Land you know, Department, okay. which is an organ, a part of the state that kind of governs the Hawaiians, and they don't, they don't really care about Hawaiians. And because took off, you mean know, had so much traction, and you know, I mean, celebrities was coming in. Really? And, yes. That Jason Momoa cruising with us. Oh wow! <laughs> oh yeah, I found it. Yeah. Uh, so you have kids? Yes, I have one son, one daughter. You, um, how do you feel about, do you feel optimistic about raising your kids in the community now with the future ahead of them, like the way that politics, government's being run, opportunities for them? Do you feel optimistic for them or are you concerned? No, I mean... They got a really good mom. <laughs> so, I mean, she's on them. I mean, my kids is active in sports. Uh, my daughter plays volleyball. My son's an actually, he's really good at whatever he does. He's kind of one of those kids. Nice. He boxes a lot. I mean, he's a CrossFit. I mean, he, he kills it at CrossFit. Really? Yes. He's an animal. So he, they're, they're doing good. I'm going to watch a lot of Mama Bear. Good. Yeah. That's huge. Yes. Uh, do you feel good about their opportunities in terms of schooling and edu- or uh, work opportunities? And all? Yes. You know what I mean? Today, for, for them, 
like you know, Kapal School is completely different from when I went there. Okay. So it's actually a really good school now. Okay. I mean, yeah. So the kids are. Well, Makoa just graduated. That's my son. He just graduated, but my daughter is doing really good in school. Kind of one of them all A's students. So nice. <laughs> She's doing good. Good. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for say, taking so much time and being candid. Oh yeah. Appreciate Someone, it. Someone's got to do something. Good. Them to There's a future coming up behind. And I can feel it, but I don't know where it's coming from. And I can hold it, but I, I cannot see its face. And time is out of my hand. Max Medeiros is best known as a professional surfer in the early 80s who turned to board building to build a career that didn't require him to travel and be away from his family. His family has been on Kauai for generations, and he still stewards a few properties that will be passed to his children. One of these properties tragically burned down last year due to an electrical short that happened next to some old newspapers or magazines. His shaping bay was also on that property and has vanquished, so he's taking a break from shaping surfboards for a while. We recorded this in another one of his family properties on his family's ancestral land in Kalaheo. It's right off the main road, and we needed to keep the doors and windows open for the breeze so you'll hear some traffic in the background, but never mind that. Just enjoy my chat with Max Medeiros. What's it like surfing with your wife? Oh, it's a blessing, you know. We've been surfing together almost. Oh, well, I met her when I was at 19, I think she was 17. So, it's almost all 40 years, maybe. <laughs> so, we surfed together. It's almost insane. 40 years. Do you know anybody else who does that and has been doing it that long? Mm, I think a couple of uh, my other friends, um, not as long as us, but almost you know a couple of them you know in Kauai um, not too many maybe two maybe you know uh, Malia Manuel's her mom and dad yeah surf is good friends of mine Celso and um, the mom and then we get Terry Chan and his wife Mo so they've been together and surfed together for a while too so is it good for the relationship well, I think for for the male part, yeah, because <laughs> you get to go to the beach. <laughs> for me, for uh, for myself, I think so because she knows my life is how we met, yeah, in the water. Yeah, uh, not in the water, but we we met, and that's how I fell in love with her. Yeah, oh, got liked her or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing I tell my friends or like how I met my wife. Uh, Dane Keloa and the Keloa family was close uh, with Derek, the younger brother. Mike, we're all good friends a lot. But anyway, Derek's the younger brother was had his wife or oh, girlfriend at the time and brought over my wife. Oh, at the time it wasn't my wife, but she came over. You know, you go to the beach, you figure the girls lay on the beach, right? And then she, you go, oh, you go out surf and you guys in the water. But she came swim, swimming up to me. You know, like, uh, what? 
ah, like Barrio's board. I'm like, what? Barrio's board? Are you supposed to be on the beach lane now? You know? So I feel, yeah, whatever. You figure that girls are just, you know, how they surf or flop in, you know, and, you know, how they, they don't have a paddle. You know, you figure, ah, you just, they just like come swimming, fuck, just hang on you. Go, oh, that, she got on my board, ladder board. She started to surf just as good as me. So it's like, oh my God, I'm going to marry this girl. And, you know, I just met her. Yeah. And so after that, lucky. God, you know, the Lord, they blessed me with my wife. That's a great day. story. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was funny. That's amazing. I couldn't believe it. she could surf just as good as me. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. She could surf good. I mean, like, turn it. <laughs> turn right. it good. Like, right. I know I had too much women surfing at the time, or girls at that time, yeah. Right. So it was like, I was blown, I was kind of blown away. In, in Where was that? Uh, she was at Hanalei on, on pine trees. Okay. You know, the whole the irons contested every year. But anyway, that's back then when we were saying. I was 19, she was 17. I, I forgot already. Um, is that where you grew up? In Hanalei? I grew up here. This is where you at, right? Yeah, I grew up right there. This is this house? house? Yeah. Holy cow. This is, this is where. Well, this place is really. My family is from the old ancient Hawaiian times, you know. My f we're still on the same land that my grandma's grandparents and her grandparents lived on for over 200 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so we're still on our same family, ancestral lands we call them. You know, before it became the Hawaiian kingdom, you know, before came, before everything else. See, my family's been here. Um, we're still raising the taro. You, you know, they get taro patches. I mm -hmm. mean. The McPoy. We still run. We have all the same fields still to today from 200 years. It's back there, right in the back. This whole place is to be. This they call them the Kalo Aina, like the land of the taro. This is all the taro. This is all my great grandparents' family live all in here. This is the original Kala Hill, where I'm the last family. The original families back in the 18, 17, 600, where everyone go. I'm the last family living here wow. from that time. So we're still having our same customary traditional practices still going. And do you farm it? Or do you have people? My brother. Your brother farms yeah. it. My brother my, came down from my dad to my brother. I didn't like it. I was I was surfing. I was in I was in the ocean a lot. Right. But my brother my brother lives here, he's in the back. But he takes care of all that. Okay. He does all that the Hawaiian um, practices, making Hawaiian salt, you know, taking care of the fishes and all the practices that our ancestors did. He's, he keeps doing it, <laughs> not me. I surf for him. And you have like commercial clients that buy it? No, this is our food for gift to the family. You know, our tradition is always not for sale. We always was for eat family, so that was all. That's our traditions. So we we don't sell for money. Beautiful. Yeah. What's your favorite dish to make with it? Uh, we the Hawaiian salt we use them with everything. Yeah? They call them pahakai. Okay. So we make salt down in our, our our beach property. We have a house lot down in down in Kalaheo on the ocean side. So we have we make salt down there. Okay. So that was our original house down there, and this used to be the the farm area. So my great my grandma and her her parents used to come up from the ocean to farm up here, you know, get their food up here, 
and they go back out to the ocean. So that was the old ways. Yeah. I see. Um, did your parents surf? No. Because at that time, my dad is Portuguese Hawaiian. So back when the 1900s came, surfing was kind of looked at as a hippie drug, good for nothing, you <laughs> know, outcast. So. My dad, dad was always hunters, farmers. They farmed the land, hunt and stuff. But um, my brother taught me how to surf. He was a fisherman surfer. You know, like growing up, you get in your, your uh, what you call that? You play football or you play volleyball or whatever you wanted to, but you surf them. And, no, and surfing back then, you couldn't make a living, yeah? Then, no. So that was hard, yeah. So, when he introduced it to you, how old were you and what well, type of... I was like what five, 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 years, five years old. Yeah, I surfed yeah. almost all my life. And what, what type of boards were you riding back then? I was riding those tankers, you know, those heavy, big, nine, two stringers, glass, like, 18 ounce glass or whatever. You know, back in the old, it was so heavy. You know, that was like in the 60s, I guess, 60, 64. Yeah, I was, I born 59, so 64, 60 something, 63, you know, is when I started to learn, yeah. So that was changing over to the fiberglass boards, yeah, from the wooden ones. So, but it was still heavy and big, yeah, but I surfed on that, that's what I started on. Do you remember uh, who was shaping those boards? No, that was all homemade. Oh, they were. That was all the old, old timer, old timers. It wasn't like the guys like Bing or names board builders right first come Kobe wasn't it was like it was surfers but they were like made out of the backyard but even those guys I mean like Brewer was on island right Brewer came in 60 I was like 10 12 so 67 68 so it was like a couple years after that because I'm thinking even the backyard guys were probably pretty well-known names at this point. Well, not really, because that was like homemade, yeah. The only okay. famous guy came was Brewer, and then okay. and then other guys like um, Joe Kitchen or Joe Koala was making boards. Okay. But the other guys was back, had a couple of good shapers back then. Even my brother made my boards, and well, he knew how to do it, so we backyard kind. The, where was everybody getting materials at that point? We said this one person used to have used to bring it in. He had a call that this kind of health food stores. He used to be in Kapaya down Lihue in the valley. He used to bring in blanks and I don't know how he got, them, but they brought them in from and they used to sell last Hawaii. I think so. That's okay. when they first started. Because yeah. they've been around since nineteen sixty. Three maybe? Yeah, I think so. Long time. Yeah, because I don't know how they was getting. I was young, so I don't know. Yeah. So they had kits before. Okay. Remember they used to sell the blank, the glass, okay. fins, everything. That one whole surfboard kit, so you can make your whole board. Got it. I remember that. So. But I remember that guy used to carry when I first started. I used to go in the shop, and I was young and looking at the blanks. I was checking it out. I was interested. Yeah. So I knew that time. That's how. That's how I would go get my, buy my blank to get the guys making. And this guy named old time shaper named Kimi, 
Kimihara, a Japanese Chinese person that knew my brother there, could make really good surfboards back then. So that's how I got my boards from there before Dick Brewer. Because Brewer's boards was like $95. <laughs> it was back then, it's it a lot of money yeah, yeah. for us at that time. And the 95 bucks, 85 bucks, you know, it's still cheap, but was a lot for a kid. Like, Absolutely. For me. Max decided as a young teen that he would make a living surfing. The practicality of doing that as a professional surfer was still a few years off. And while there were bigger checks to be earned on Oahu, he'd have to garner enough local wins and support to justify the time and investment of a winter season on Oahu. I, I just told my parents when I was like nine or 10 that I'm gonna make money out of surfing. And they, they just laughed at me. Yeah, I told them I'm gonna buy my home and everything. By the time I was 24, I owned three properties. Really? Surfing, yeah. Was there any opportunity to make a living from sponsors, or was it all through no. contest winnings? The sponsors was my wife, well, my girlfriend <laughs> at that time. She supported me. Okay. And paid my entry fees, you know. I was getting boards free. From who? From uh, a lot of guys was giving me surf, because I, I was in that, that level of surfing at least. They see my talent was surface, so they would give me surfboards. Who who know. were the names? Um, guys like um, Bill Wetzel. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. He's from San, Santa Cruz. I mean, that's San Clemente. Okay. But he moved here, and Skip Harmon used to work with Brewer. There was the first guys came to um, Kauai with, with Brewer. Okay. Skip Harmon and Dick and Bill Wetzel. Okay. These guys was like the I guess they moved from California here. Where but they were they branched out on their own and they started to just give boards to me. And then that's how I got boards and then from there I went get sponsors from HIC and and other companies after that. Tony yeah. Country, you know, Island Classics. From the biggest sponsor I had was Island Classics when Eric first Eric Arcal first opened his his board. I was his first um, probably professional or that was my first getting paid <laughs> yeah okay. payment from from Japan yeah okay I was getting sponsored from Japan do you remember uh, how much you were getting paid I think I was making like I was getting like maybe 400 a month for the surfboards maybe a couple hundred more for my wetsuits and I was getting like my, my slippers and stuff like that so I was making like a thousand dollars a month back then. Was that early 80s? Yeah, Mid- early 80s. 80s yeah. Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, I was making, well, you know, back then, a dollar was a dollar, you know. Yeah. You could make a living, you know, you could buy a lot of stuff. Though. But I was saving, I put my money away. All my winnings and all my, my sponsorship, I put it away and I invested it in, in property. Mm-hmm. Bought home, bought land. Good so, for you. Yeah. Who uh, in, instilled that in you? My wife. <laughs> Good. <laughs> she took the money. She told me, yo, money, we put it away. Good. My money at work, we use for bike, whatever, gas. So. But we was living with her mom and dad, so we wasn't paying much. Okay. You know, so. And that's how we got to save our money and, and get investments and stuff. Amazing. That was very insightful of her. Yeah. Well, she seen, you know, because already when we were young, I told her we was going to get home, right? Mm-hmm. I told you. So that was our plan. She knew my whole 
um, goal was. Good. Surf while make my living move back to Kauai. Good. Yeah, so we invested all money. In 1976, at the age of 16, Max finally made it to Oahu, where Pipeline was pumping at 10 feet. Four and a half decades and many pipe sessions later, Max doesn't exactly remember the first wave that he caught at Pipe, but everyone on the beach that day still does. Good friends of mine became really, really like my family, and they used to live right in front of Pipe with Brian Buckley and all the, the, the call the Pipe crew and underground crew. So this is one of my, my son's godfather you know, told me a story. This is Dutch, he told me a story. They said they were all was big pipe now, it was like maybe like 10, 12 feet pipe. And they all got done surfing. It was all party. You know how you get out after you surf the day and afternoon, like two, three o'clock to come in. Decided to make the barbecues. So there was barbecue and then my friend told me, you know, he was with fat paw and and um, with all the boys back then, and I guess Lopez, uh, whoever they were, Brian Buckley. But anyway, he told me the story that they seen a little black kid coming down with a little board, like I had boards on small, I, I only had one board at the time. So they just kind of going, tripping out on, that was me, right, walking in. They, they couldn't believe that I was coming down with this small board. Yeah. So it was like, Watching, they like started to go. Oh no! You know they, they're all laughing because they all write big words, right? Saying, "Oh my God, this guy's gonna get killed," you know. So they just told me, told me step by step. Like they see me jumping over, like, "Oh no, he's he's gonna jump in," <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh my God, he's jumping in! Tell me the story. And then they say we couldn't believe it. He fell right out. They said. Kept on paddling out, it's like, oh my god, he's gonna eat it, you know, you know he's gonna get killed. But they said, they seen the sets coming, and they see me just paddling up the face, and turn around, this giant set took off, paddled down the face, stood up, and turned in the barrel, got spit it out. They just said, oh my god, who the <laughs> F is this guy? <laughs> and he told me it was God's truth. I go, really? He told me, yeah, we were betting that he's gonna eat crap, but he was gonna paddle all up. And it's like, Really, he told me that years after you know we became really close. Yeah, you know, you know I, he told me, you know, when I first met you, I said, yeah, yeah, we was partying with Jim Rusey, me and you, Marvin, Mickey Nielsen, me, Marvin Foster, you and Kalani Foster was partying at back door at uh, Jim Rusey. I don't know, you know, yeah. Jim. Yeah, yeah, we were all young, yeah. So it was all partying at there, drinking and partying out at the night after surfing good ways, and you know. And then he just kind of told me, he told me the story, you know, when we first met you, and I go, yeah, yeah, we was partying at Jim's place. But no, no, and we see you walking down the beach when you was young, when you first came to the North Shore. We just couldn't believe what we seen. Yeah. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember that wave? No, I just, I got so many ways. I just, yeah. I, 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 this like was natural to me, you know. Right. I like surfing big waves, so yeah. it was nothing to me. So what was your first memory of Pipeline? Do you remember the first time you laid eyes on it? Oh, I just love it, yeah. Because I just knew I could surf it. Do you remember your first wave out there? Mm, not really. Okay. I couldn't tell you the truth. Yeah. I had so many, but I really don't know. I know you say you love it and you love surfing big waves, but were you intimidated? No. Really? I was intimidated of the people, Yeah. but not the ocean. Who is who are you intimidated by in that era? Well, just from the, the 
I was a nobody, you know, walking up on the beach, you know, you all alone, right? So you're mm-hmm. from Kauai. Kauai yeah. is like, you know, you, you're out of somewhere else, but you, you're going into somebody else's territory, you know. It's mm-hmm. like, you, so you gotta, you gotta respect the locals, you gotta watch what you're doing. I was brought up that way, you gotta be humble and respect everybody around you, so. Well, when I went out there, I had nobody, so it was, <laughs> they were all done surfing or they were afraid. I really don't know, but I know it was really good that day. I mean, it sounds like you earned their respect without you even knowing it. Yeah, I did that. I did. That told me, my friend, my, my, he's like my brother, yeah. He told me, yeah, we, we couldn't, we never, couldn't believe what we saw that day. Yeah. Despite taking center stage and the limelight at Pipe, surfers from the Outer Islands have a harder time adapting to the life of a professional surfer. The filmers and photographers hunker down on the North Shore of Oahu for the winter months to maximize their opportunity to capture the world's best. Then it's off to Australia in the early spring, South Africa, maybe South America and the South Pacific, then Western Europe in the autumn. For local Hawaiian surfers, it's the opposite of island fever. Hawaii surfers are faced with the decision to either stay home in paradise and surf good waves or follow that media circus around the world, hoping to get waves that probably aren't as good as home, incur tons of expense along the way, while spending consecutive weeks and months away from family, all to say that you're making your living as a professional surfer. Max began doing double duty for town and country surfboards, surfing professionally, and then also managing the surf team and overseeing some retail accounts on the islands. This line of work also gave him more exposure to board building, which his brother and then Eric Arakawa had introduced him to early in his life. Eventually, after his time with town and country, he began building his own boards and then launched his own label, Hawaiian Blades. I think when I, seen the, when I was in the business, because they only wanted to keep the guys on the tour. They were starting to pay their salaries. You have to be in a certain ranking, you know, and I knew I couldn't travel, you know. Why not? Because I, I was married, I had kids already. Okay. You know, and my money was more for my family instead of for, for me to waste. <laughs> I think I was wasting it going on the tour because my whole talent was in bigger ways not like now it was like today's day right now if I could travel like today where they're having all the contests in small I think ways. I would have been on the top 10 you know? <laughs> so at that time um, did you feel a regret or any real internal challenge no I'm grateful for that I'm, I'm thank God, cool God every day for what I achieve you know so you were happy to let to not go on tour and just to be able to come home and yeah, because I think Hawaii are the best waves in the world, so I never needed to go spend hundreds of dollars to go trade something that wasn't worth it. Yeah. When I could drive $5 and sleep in my own bed and stay by my family. You know, I, ch- I kind of went away that balance, you know? You I, know? I love hearing that. Yeah. And I love that you're that actualized because so many people want to chase those goals, you know? Yeah. And they don't appreciate what's right in front of them. Well, you know, you, you want more, you, you're going, you're going, I mean, you like that, you see more, you want to get more exactly. and more, when is going to stop until it's too late 
when you have nothing. Yes, that's what everybody does. Yeah. So, right? I mean, yeah, it's like kind of when I already had my limit. I've tried to set my goals that I wanted to move back to Kauai, earn enough money to put back my money into my home mm-hmm. and then build my career around my business. So I, I already kind of have certain plans that I had in, in me that I thought so I wanted and I did it. You know, yeah. I, I, I that, that's what I focus on, and I, I, I did it. Okay. Until there, I'm doing it too. I, like now, I relax. I surfing. I mean, I still surfing. Yeah. You know. So, you transition out of competitive surfing, take the job with TNC, managing the team, mm-hmm. and then also starting to shape boards more frequently. I started to shape boards a couple years after I got hired from Blue White. Okay. You know, though I kind of enticed me over and, you know, I should have stayed with Tony Country because they was good to me. Yeah. But they offered me more money. I had, I had kids coming. I had another kid coming, my son. So I needed to get more, more of a salary because I had bigger expenses. Now. So Blue Hawaii brought me over, Glenn, Manami. So he was paying me more. But then everything hit with the Gulf War and things went wire again so that he cut that's everybody had to get a cut back in salary so that's when I started to think you know I was selling these guys X amount of boards right so I go why should I sell these boards I can make my own mm-hmm. and make my own salary and just as and my own brand yeah so that's what I did I made my own board but I was still working with him they knew I was kind of like making side shaping and stuff so yeah my own business so that was kind of good until i transferred say i i, I moved into uh, moving over to Kauai. um all those years working with arakawa and manami mm-hmm. were you spending time in the shaping bay mostly with eric i learned a lot from eric yeah you know i learned when i was a little a, a younger teenager i learned from joe koala okay. progressive expressions he taught me how to use the machines yeah so I kind of was kind of more familiar with the grinders and you know, mm-hmm. but Eric showed me designs, you know, how to design boards and, and learn, you know, yeah, more of what to look for. Yeah. And I've been around a lot of shapers, Ben Aiko, you know, been around Glenn Pang, mm-hmm. da- Dennis Pang. Dennis Pang is one of my closest friends too, so we got along a lot. So you had access to lots of information. Oh, I a lot. Ross said, I could go into anybody's sh- shaker room and have, I, they have no problem with me being there. Yeah. We were, we, we, I think we were close. And, I mean, I, I had my, I got my respect yeah, sorry, from all of that, from probably from surfing and being around the business. Right. So I could go into anybody's multiple people on the island told me that max is surfing better or certainly as good now at the age of 60 as he did when he was 20. when i asked max about this he humbly gave the credit to the boards that he's been writing and uh, he's writing some of his own boards but he's also writing some from his good friend lance ebert who we will hear from in a minute but I was really more curious about how his body and his mind allows him to be in the position to be improving his surfing into his 60s. Okay. So tell me what your day consists of. I get up 5 o'clock mostly every day and work out for about an hour. Work out? Yeah. Doing what? I do that, the weights, stretches, 
I had a bad back. What happened to your back? I went to main uh, portal back in. You remember that movie Ticket to Ride with Spielberg? Yeah. I mean, Soderbergh? Yeah. Yeah, I was with him down in Mexico. Almost okay. broke my back at Puerto. Puerto Escondido? Yeah, I injured my back bad. What uh, What year was that? Oh, shoot, that was, that was a while, 80, 82, okay. 83. So you were I, young and fit? Yeah. So I kind of injured my back bad down there. And then I started to shake more the last, when I was 40, I think. 45, I think I was shaping a lot and twisting and sanding and stuff that yeah. injured my back more and I was surfing hard, so mm -hmm. everything kind of my age and then and I wasn't training back then, see I just was surfing right. more and then the last 10 years or 5 years I started, I had to start getting myself stronger, Okay. so that's when I started to get up, work, work out and just get myself fit there. 5 a.m. Hour, uh, hour of weight training and stretching. Stretching and cardio. Cardio too, okay. Yeah. And then what do you do at six? I come feed my animals or I go surf. <laughs> okay. Surf yeah. pretty much every day then? Mostly every day. Okay. Some days not, when I do yard, if I work hard around the yard, I rest the day for the day. Like today I go home and I might work out in the afternoon. Okay. It just depends how I feel. Did you surf this morning? No. Okay. I went to my uh, one of my good friends' dad passed away. Hmm. So I went to the funeral. Um, what's your diet like? I kind of watch my diet. I mean, I eat not as bad as before. I kind of not eat as much meat, not as much as mayonnaise. I love mayonnaise, but not as much. I don't eat candies. I don't. I drink diet coke, but not as much. Or um, maybe one soda every week or something. So everything is changing, yeah, because of my age. But less sugar. Less sugar and try to get away from the salts and stuff. Okay. That's what the main thing is the less sugar, and try to watch those mayonnaise. You know, mayonnaise kills and rice. So I eat brown rice, not as much. Do you worry about fat? I worry about fat, okay. but that slows you down. Okay. That's that what keeps you, you know, yeah. slow. Yeah. What about alcohol? I don't drink it. I drink once in a while, but not, I don't drink like before, like when I was young. Did you notice it having an effect on you when you were young? No. Okay. We smoked weed and do whatever when I was young. Yeah, no problem. I did everything when I was young, no yeah. problem. Why'd you stop? Oh, my wife. Take that or you go. Yeah. Why do you like? Stay with me or sleep with the bottle? <laughs> That's all it took? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It helped me. Yeah. You mentioned that your home burned down. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. How traumatic was that? Well, I just, it's just something that happened, yeah. So, it's just, no, everything is all good because we had insurance and. I mean, everything burned. I lost all my boy. I lost a lot of old stuff from my great-grandparents that is priceless. You know, that kind of stuff will never be, um, can be placed on value. So, but I just look at it and nobody got hurt. My mom was living with me and my mother-in-law. So they, my mother-in-law passed away a year before, so that was a Then my mom got sick and then she, I moved her into the care home. So I'm fortunate that 
they were at home and that was a blessing so yeah. I look at that was a blessing because if they got they couldn't move right? I mean, they're older they could have died so I look at that was a blessing nobody got hurt my daughter was home she got out so it was an electrical fire electrical yeah it's um I'm amazed by your perspective it's beautiful well I would I tell you the truth I go to church almost every day in the morning too you know so that's the thing I go mass in the morning that helps me okay. during the day good so I get a lot of things that I do you know I get out I, you know, I'm fortunate because I'm still doing what I like doing I yeah. so. I'm just so impressed to hear that um, optimistic perspective especially knowing that like these properties have been in your family for so long mm -hmm. you know if my place burned down who cares because I've only been there for 10 years and yeah. I don't have any relics that have been passed down to me mm -hmm. but these properties it's amazing that you um, are grateful and don't have that sentimental attachment to just things yeah. you know so it's only things good my enjoyment is surf having a smile and making sure everybody else is happy around you yeah not negative you know yeah you can be negative is waste of time good you gotta be positive take everything you gotta put yourself in other guy's shoes maybe you know sometimes you know so you gotta kind of think maybe the guy had a bad day if he's trying to move to you you know something might be his wife you don't know could be. so you gotta kind of like step back and put yourself there he's rude or something happened bad to you so it's gotta be real I, I like to try to ask God every day to keep me humble as well. my whole thing is keep my family humble and not to disrespect or be arrogant to anybody is it? just to be equal were your parents that way? I, I think my dad was my dad was my mom was a little bit more of a uh, she's a tour driver so she's the entertainers. <laughs> yeah. So, but my dad was really, um, he was really quiet. You know? yeah. He had, uh, he was humble. Yeah. Ultimately, as you can tell, Max's story is inextricable from his wife's story. Renee is her name, by the way. They survived a harrowing incident recently, about a year ago, where Renee slipped and fell off a cliff that they were fishing from. She broke her pelvis in five places and was completely immobilized at the bottom of the cliff. Max witnessed the entire accident, and being the only person around with no cell phone service, he had to rely on all of that strength and fitness to rescue her. Fishing and she was following me and she fell out. Her, her bag swing had heavy. She carries my equipment now, so she fell off the cliff about 20, 24 in the water and hit a rock. So How scary was that to see? Oh, that was scary. That was kind of scary, but ah, it all came all good right after the fire. So it's kind of like we didn't want to have everybody kind of like panicking for us. So. So we're kind of quiet. So she was in the hospital for two months, and then she just went back work about two weeks already. So she'd been out for about ten months out of work. That's big. It's yeah, a big injury. It's pretty bad. How did you get her out, uh, rescue her? Oh, well, we swam around a couple cliffs, and then while she was injured, 
Yeah. Like rather than climbing out? Yeah, she couldn't walk. Yeah. So you put her in the water and you both swam? Yeah, we swam. And then she, we came into another bay where it's calm. She got on my back and then I put her down and then I ran up to where our car was. And then called my son. He called 911 and it was kind of fast. They all came. Where we stayed is where nobody would find us. We stayed in the cliffs there. Okay. But we got in, we got in there fast, like 20 minutes. When I got her out of the water, got those guys who came back, it was about 20 minutes, real fast. Wow. I don't know, I ran kind of fast, but well, everything kind of went kind of That's unbelievable. Yeah, it was pretty fast. It was amazing. The, when you were swimming, were you freaking out? Was she no. freaking out? Only when I brought her on, the first thing I got scared was when we, I brought her on the top because the waves there. So when we got on, she couldn't move, and this big wave came. So I had to jump on her and, you know, kind of like protect, protect her, and then the wave just brought me up the cliff with her. That's when I got scared. Yeah. She couldn't walk. Yeah, because you would be worried that she's gonna get paralyzed yeah. or something. Yeah. So I grabbed her, and then we're back in the water, and then that's how we swam around. Wow. And then we came around. That was pretty heavy. That's the first time I got scared, you know, yeah. in the ocean. Wow. It was like that. Because for her, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, oh, that's good. Thank God everything worked out. You guys have a wild love story. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> <laughs> we close me. She's like my partner. Ask Max if he was ready to get back to shaping boards. He said that he's not in any hurry. He's always grateful to do it, but he's also happy to see those board orders going to Will Scoville or Lance Ebert. He's happy to see their businesses thriving. And by the way, the last board that Max rode was a 5'8 Bonzer that he got from Lance Ebert. And I'll have pictures of it on surfsplendorpodcast.com and on Instagram at surfsplendor. And that brings us to our final guest on today's show, Westsider Lance Ebert. As you head west from Max's in Kalaheo, you'll pass the small historic town of Hanapepe with its swinging bridge and one of Hawaii's best bakeries that makes an amazing golden ginger turmeric loaf. Ten minutes on, and the coastline starts to veer north, where you'd eventually run into the Nepali coast if the road didn't dead end at the Pacific Missile Range Facility, aka Barking Sands, aptly named because it's the world's largest testing and training missile range facility. It's owned by the U.S. Navy. The most common reason why tourists find themselves on this side of the island is to visit and or hike Waimea Canyon. Known as the Grand Canyon of the Pacific, it reminds you of the marvel of this small island. 
completely distinct from all the other beauty on offer, and yet equally as jaw-dropping. Just a short 30-minute drive inland and up in elevation from the coastal town of Waimea, which shouldn't be confused, by the way, with Oahu's Waimea Canyon, Waimea Falls, and Beach, and, of course, the big wave surf spot. The word Waimea is Hawaiian for reddish water, which references both locations' erosion of its red soil. Waimea Canyon on Kauai is usually 10 to 20 degrees cooler than the town of Waimea itself just below. All of the vegetation as you make your way up to the canyon is different. It's home to different birds and animals. And it's really impossible to effectively describe the grandeur, the complexity, and the beautiful uniqueness of the endless ridges, which are hardened lava flows, each making up their own various peaks and valleys that kind of become the walls that make up the larger canyon. The central peak in the area is one of the wettest places on Earth, receiving an average of 373 inches of rainfall a year and a record 683 inches in 1982. Like all other of the Hawaiian islands, Kauai is the top of an enormous volcano rising from the ocean floor. It's the oldest of the large Hawaiian islands, and roughly four million years ago, when Kauai was still erupting almost continuously, a portion of the island collapsed. This collapse formed a depression, which then filled with lava flows. All of that rainwater from the high peak making its way down to the Pacific Ocean expedited the erosion of this 10-mile-long, 3,000-foot-deep canyon and it also created some of the most spectacular waterfalls on the island. If you're rugged enough, athletic enough, and brave enough, you can hike right up to the edge of some of these waterfalls. The canyon is a state park, and it's free to visit and explore, but there are very few railings, signs, or warnings, and overzealous tourists do slip and fall and die each year. This is, in fact, the spot where National Lampoon co-founder Doug Kenny's body was found at the bottom of one of the cliffs. Police ruled it an accidental death. And um, the day that I visited and hiked it, we sat perched for lunch on a fallen tree on one of these ledges next to the top of an 800-foot waterfall, trying to soak in all of the grandeur. It was a spectacular view. And we could see miles down through the canyon into the Pacific. And what I didn't know there until a couple of days later was that nestled at the delta of the canyon and the Pacific was the home of our next guest, Lance Ebert. I'd been trying to get a hold of Lance for weeks, actually. He hadn't replied to any of my DMs. Every few days, a new person would suggest that I interview Lance, most of them referencing that in addition to making some of the best boards on island, he's just a great character that would be good on the podcast. So being somewhat of a recluse, having never listened to a podcast and prioritizing his life around surfing, I think I was pretty low on Lance's list of things to do. But thankfully, finally, with less than 24 hours notice, Lance hit me back with the time and his home address and he agreed to do this interview. So there I was, I found myself on his porch with his dog, chatting about laminating for Dick Brewer and asking the stupid question of why he decided to leave his hometown of Santa Cruz to spend his life on Kauai. 
for stranger. A bunch of people messaged me and knowing I was coming this month telling me that you were the guy that I needed to talk to. I don't know what it is if they mean if it's because they're writing your boards and they like your boards or but you have a reputation I should say. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think they're referring to? I don't know that it might be a circus show. <laughs> Could be. They're like it'll be really entertaining. I don't know about that either. Um, you're from Santa Cruz originally? Yeah I grew up in Santa Cruz and I think started coming out here when I was 14 what? and I kind of moved out here when I was 16. Did your parents bring you when you were 14? Yeah, my oh. dad, he liked it. What What did your dad do? Uh, he was a house builder. like a. Was he coming out here and working or just vacation? No, nah, just cruise, come well, see friends. Uh, what was it like when you were coming at 14? I mean, that's got to be wildly different than it is now. You know, it was like pre-internet and pre surf forecasting so you could show up and get good waves you know uh different just less you know less people i'm sure you go back a generation before my time and they're gonna say the same thing the less people yeah (laughs) so my my less people is in you know in the spectrum that there was a lot more people than say like 60s 70s yeah so it was like late 80s 90s were there i mean were you staying in hotels or just camping or Somebody let me live in a dilapidated house. I stayed with friends. Uh, uh, Meha Balmors. His family really took care of me, gave me a place to stay, helped me get a job. First job, first car, all that kind of stuff. And then one of his aunties had a house that was, like, dilapidated, but I lived in the kitchen. So What part of the island is that? That was Koloa. Okay. Lance has been based out of Kauai ever since. He'd go back to Santa Cruz as often as his business and family commitments would allow. His formative surfing years there in Santa Cruz were in the late 80s, alongside Flea, Barney, Ratboy, the Acker Brothers, and Tony Roberts documenting that aerial movement that would immeasurably change the direction of progressive surfing. It's also where Lance got his introduction to board building. Uh, Joey Thomas was a board builder in Santa Cruz. And uh, he worked for a lot of different people before. I think he worked for Dewey Weber, maybe. But um, anyway, growing up, that was the guy he wanted to get a board from. And um, he kind of taught me how to make boards and, you know, let me use his shop, his planers, stuff like that. You know, stuff that you would never let somebody use it today. You know what I mean? Like his skill, which was kind of nice. so he let me build boards, and then I think I was, I was around 14, late f- first board I made. And then um, I like making boards, but having to have a job, I started glassing for people just because you can make money, you know. And then I wanted to surf, so I didn't want to waste my time trying to sell stuff to people. So, Who are you glassing boards for? Uh, out here for Mike Wellman. For probably like almost 30 years, maybe like 20, yeah, 27 years I worked for him, but he just retired a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I worked for a bunch of other people. I went I went to Australia and worked there at factories, and that kind of turned me off of working at factories. What about it? I couldn't handle just the uh, pollution, the amount of uh, numbers you had to do. I worked for 
place that was glossy Nev's Nev Sports, and it was like ridiculous. Like um, so four glossers doing eight boards a day. You know, it's was, it was, let's see, thirty-five boards glassed a day. You know, and that many sanded every day. It was just. I mean, I know I make a mess making, you know, a few boards, but it was just overload for me. Yeah. I were, um, well, actually babysat like for Darren Hanley and worked for him before he was he was still at Pipe Dream with Murray and so they let me make boards there and got to know the Dean family Wayne Dean and he helped me make his brother actually turned me on to making single fins and foiling them a real fat foil it was pretty awesome what does the fat foil do? Uh, uh, Dean was just into all these single fins and he would um, always just Q-cell them up so they got really thick instead of having to do it with material because it would flex a certain way so they'd take a glass panel and then just add material to it just that kind of that theory of like the airplane wing the volume by foil front to back and it was it was nice hmm. so I took I took that board I remember I left in the Cook Islands because I used to like going there because nobody thought there was waves there and it's pretty that was nice working there but so the factory work is where like I worked probably like learned how to do stuff better than like backyard because it's so much volume you're just yeah and i worked uh under this guy billy grant i don't know if you ever heard of billy grant i don't think so he's like the aki of his generation before oh okay and he was a top-notch chef so he always go glass all day and then as things were setting up we'd go to his house and he made some gourmet food but um i think i think he's still alive but he's he's pretty up there too when you're living out here, Kauai's pretty remote, obviously. How do you even develop those connections with guys and learn that there's work to be done in Australia and hook all that up? Um, Richard Marsh, you know Doug Marsh? His brother, I met him, like he was, I was traveling around Central America, and um, he was down there. He is my, my connection, Jason, yeah. And um, it was after Iniki, I think right after the hurricane and there was a lot of work here but um, after certain things happened I think I'd left took over there and um, his childhood friend is Darren Hanley so Darren he he wasn't doing his own thing yet just starting to his first boards are made I think he made me like 15 it was so funny because nobody knew who he was I yeah, brought him yeah. one of the first team no first no, 15 DHs no not the first he was making boards for all his friends Okay, but like he just had his new logo and it wasn't Pipe Dream, it was, you know, DHD. So I brought all these boards back and people were like, who's this guy, you know? But he made awesome, I mean, he still does, awesome boards, you know? Yeah. So he was the one, like, he was setting me up to go work in Europe and Spain, and it just ne- never happened, I think, because I met my wife. But I think that's how, you know, obviously someone in the industry, you know, they were connected, I think, with Pukas and... And different board builders. I think there was somebody doing boards in Reunion Island at the time. Wow. So there's a lot of like work kind of opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's funny is it's because you're laminating, you know, like people who get into the business now or kids anyways, especially on Instagram, everybody wants to be a shaper, but they don't realize there's really nobody filling backfilling the industry in terms of sand nobody gets in because they want to be a sander not a lot of guys get in because they want to be a laminator but if you did there's plenty of work to be had right um 
you would I would think so yeah um yeah I like the aspect that I got a paycheck you know what I mean like I just went to work and I could surf my brains out and not have to worry about you know what like a shaper has to worry about theoretically right if you own your own business um yeah there's uh I know it's funny that in the Instagram world is pretty hilarious it's crazy. but um yeah glassing sanding all, all of that just being able to you know make a board stay nice from after you got it from the shaper and yeah plenty it seems like there's plenty of work who knows what's going to go on with this virus <laughs> i know i think it's a lot of hype everything i hope so i'm drinking acetone are you <laughs> is that the cure i didn't know your body made acetone your body makes acetone naturally i didn't know that i didn't know that either so i, I think that's how they make hand sanitizers higher alcohol content is alcohol and it gets they have to put i think they put acetone in some of them i don't know crazy anyway um talking about people that you worked with one of those guys is dick brewer can you tell me about the first time you met him and oh, i met him uh, young i met everybody around here young surfing and so they just thought i was a homeless kid <laughs> so everybody treated me nice especially on this side which is not um normal to treat holidays nice yeah when you know um I don't think there's any other way to say it. So I had some friends that obviously opened doors for me. And as long as you're not a punk, yes, like pretty much anywhere you treat people good, you'll be treated good. Um, what was the question? When was the first time you met Brewer? Oh, so I met Brewer surfing a spot down here. And a spot like they, they kind of made their shop a long time ago because it was close to the spot. So met him there. Um, ones the sander we had working at Wellman's shop I mean there was a bunch but the longest one was this Ernie Hauser <laughs> er, Ernie's a bit of a, a sand, like a sander mongrel like he would just sand and sand beautiful like unreal finishes like you know extra mile so it was hard to replace replace that but he knew that Brewer needed someone to do some boards so he kind of liaised on that and I just called him and went over there and that was like pretty ridiculous work and money for a little while and then the i think it was 2008 when the economy like went yeah recession yeah he had some guy there writing a book and um talking about you know all this stuff and all these board orders and i kind of didn't want to be on the other side of the island i'd leave here around four and probably get home like at eight at night or something so i wasn't with my family it, was, it wasn't every day but it was kind of a lot but it was nice to have the cash but it was also nice when it stopped yeah totally um he's such a mythic figure for so many people what can you tell me about him how was it how are his boards what was it like working with him well i'm sure everybody's worked with him in different stages of his life um, we had a kind of a nice relationship because I mean I try not to have a, a big head about myself so I whatever he needed done I'd do it um, so he kind of treated me differently I can say just because I saw other people come and meet him and like try to do interviews and stuff like that and it wasn't the same you know it was RB the surf guru you know mm-hmm. so like with me it was funny because I we knew other people in common so he'd just tell me stories and that was like, that was more payment for me, just getting to hear those stories. 
and cruise, you know, just cruise. But it'd be like after work kind. Right. Yeah, you know, with the sun going down, just cruising. So that was awesome. You know? Yeah. Yeah, just you not treating him like a celebrity probably allowed him to put his guard down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'd clean his shaping room for you know, just just random stuff that you wouldn't do unless you think you're gonna get you know. Yeah. Um. He's his, you know, the generation just the stuff that came up with the blanks. He was, I think they had a blank factory in Lawai. I think it burned down. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um. Because they couldn't get blanks or something for a little while. After Clark closed, or no, no, we. Uh, I think it was more or less the, Matson shut down or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. But yeah, his boards. I mean, his thinking of stuff of what works. Because I mean, obviously his ability to surf stopped, but his brain. Because I remember, like, he hurt his ankles, but he would always come down. Because when I was working for Wellman, we'd make. I think every month we were making like forty longboards for him. And glassing them and running them through the shop, but he'd always come down and surf. You know, it's just as you get older, but his brain was still like, I think I mean, you know, eighty something, still like firing about like all oh, these boards. And I mean, he was making the large toe boards and like these little chips. You know, this crazy stuff for someone that's not actually doing it. Right. You know. Yeah, totally. He was totally into it. I think, I think uh, him Rick Holt used to be his uh, his go-to guy shaper um i think they were making like wake stuff you know okay. like in the eight, 90s maybe in florida like wakeboards or i could be far off on that but i think they were into that so he's always been like into making toys um somebody was telling me i forget who it was that i was interviewing and because it was a couple of years ago but talking about you know some shapers are real engineering mindset and it's all by the numbers and Brewer is never that way. And if you look at his boards, there's actually a lot of imperfections in them. But they just... <laughs> if he bangs them into the wall. <laughs> <laughs> is that a problem? But no. they just work better. You know, they're like... You can think that you... Like that uh, the math is going to get you to your desired end point. But the reality is... There's an art to it. You yeah. know? And like his just work better. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a lot of guys probably working with him at that time and around him. They're all, I mean, you look at the boards, they might have had, you know, maybe a fin, different fin setup would make it work, but the boards went awesome. You know, you could grab one today and, and surf it and have a blast. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he's pretty technical, though, with his design. Not okay. so much, like you say, with numbers with a computer, but he's pretty, like, knows his bottoms and what worked and... Okay. Yeah, pretty pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think as you get older, you can't see as good. You think everything's finished, you know? Because, uh, I mean, I was hanging out with him, and he was high 70s, you know? I met him when he was younger. I mean, I was young, but he must have been... Well, that's what they say, like Claude Monet, the painter. He's does these impressionist, you know, water lilies or whatever. It's because he had terrible eyesight. He was like all but blind at the end of his life, which is when he was doing that. But it created this impressionist movement that everybody then became famous for. But it was because he was ninety percent blind. Yeah, it's a trip that he was painting. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, so, given that you've worked with so many people in so many different regions, whose boards have you been most impressed by over the years in terms of shapers that you've laminated for? Mm. There's too many. 
Really? I mean, yeah, like, I think after Unique, I went down because nobody had boards. I mean, people had boards, but went down and worked for Mike Estrada. Yeah, totally. Laminators, they had a shop. And I was living there, and Cordell, it was funny, that that day, I was getting ready for leave and had to finish up all these. I brought back a lot. I mean, you could bring back boards before on the airlines, like, you know, 20 boards, and, you know, that's cheap. Really? Yeah, I mean, just put them in boxes, but, um, Cordell, I was standing some boards for Cordell and some other guy. Cordell was hilarious. Like, he had some, I forget the guy's name, but this guy was a t- like unreal shaper. He had a big old white beard. He looked like Steve Coletta, but it wasn't. I mean, it was someone down south. And he shaped all Cordell's boards. Cordell just like signed them. And I think Amazing. the first 500 boards, he never touched a planer. Amazing. You know, he's, he's a business person. Totally. <laughs> but like he milled them out for him and then Cordell would, you know, find Santa. But at that factory, I forget who it was. It was two, two guys that had a carload of Volcom gear the day it was going out they drove up to Washington or Oregon I don't know where they started back I forget who it was one of their model guys I think that left from Quicksilver to help them and somebody else and I remember Cordell saying you're not gonna sell one thing you know because they were leaving it was like at 2 in the morning or something to drive up and they came back like halfway if everything sold <laughs> or they didn't even make it through one of the states or something they said that was Volcom yeah, that was right when that started. Rich, so Richie Walcott? I don't know who it was. It probably wasn't... Troy Eckert? I don't know. It was just, they pulled up. I think Cordell had a board for him or something. And they pulled up and they were showing the... And it was pretty, like, uh, you know, real baggy and long and all yeah. oversized. And and I remember Cordell going, you're not going to sell one thing. And they came back, like, a couple of days later yeah. it sold out. And now it's 400 million dollars later. Yeah, well, I mean, it was funny just being there watching that. Just and then seeing what it became later because I was so far out of the loop. So, uh, Mike Estrada, as far as shapers, Ward Coffee, awesome. Like, I work, I my wife grew up here, she couldn't handle cold climate, so I had a nice job with Ward and uh, I don't know if you M- M10, yeah. so uh, Jeff Rosh, Raish, yeah. yeah. So, I worked, I think that was before I got married, so I worked for him. I glassed in a place that was seriously do five boards a day glass on fins and it was not even like six foot five long it was like a old shed of a shed but it was right near the house shop so nobody thought it was any different right so it was pretty so he would pull up with five boards a day for them to sand and uh they were always tripping out, like, where are these boards coming from? But, yeah, so, I mean, as far as, I mean, there's millions of, sh- not millions, but thousands of shapers that are, you know, awesome. But those other ones I've worked with, they're all awesome, talented, like, surfers, Mike Estrada, you know, surfs good, Ward, Ward Coffee. They, like, Ward's a really good technical designer. Like, everything has to be perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, so, he was really fun to work for. I think I... At the time, kind of bummed them out, like leaving. You know, they people wanted you to sign a contract to work, and I don't do good signing things, so I was like, I'm out of here. Um, have you seen Ward's kids surfing? Uh, yeah, we used to keep in touch, but I'm really not a so much of a people person, so I didn't keep in touch. But he'd always write letters and send pictures of them. They're shredding. Yeah. Well, I don't know which one I've seen, but um, yeah, they're ripping. They're surfing really well. 
Yeah. Um, but as far as best boards, like if I could get a board right now, I'd call up Darren. But <laughs> I'd call up Darren Hanley. Really? <laughs> if I could get a board. Really? Yeah. And I lost my my phone broke and I lost all my contacts, so it's kind of probably for the better. <laughs> I've got his number. I can give it to you. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, like if I was going to get a board, any board I've ever had from him was pretty awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so despite what you said about wanting to make a living as a laminator, you shape your own boards. What kind of boards are you interested in making? Right now? Yeah, I mean, it looks like some of the stuff you're doing is pretty unique. Doing a little bit of everything. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you kind of, like, out here, away from, like, um, I would say mainstream board builders, you're kind of at the mercy of who wants to order something. Okay. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's not like you can have... I mean, you can have 30 boards of the same model, but the guy's 275 pounds and right. you can't ride that, you know. So, individual. Um, got into making a lot of those, those uh, twin fins, little, like uh, Mini Simmons, because uh, I was, got to hang out with Richard Kenvin for a while. And so I was more stoked on his Aliyah than the Mini Simmons. Like the Mini Simmons looked like a plug and didn't ever want to touch it. So after like a summer, I think we were cruising around San Francisco and then came back here, I started making some Elias and they were like amazing. And then I'm like, maybe the other board he had was amazing, you know? Yeah. Because I never wrote it and I didn't even want to know about it. And so he kind of helped me with ge generic dimensions, but then I kind of tweaked them and then tweaked the bottoms. I wouldn't say tweak because you look at what guys are doing and they're, they're tweaking all kinds of stuff. But I kind of want to go at things from a less is more aspect. Like if you don't need it, why put it in? So we just build the board till it got to where I wanted a board I could ride when I got old. But now the virus, you know. <laughs> but that's <laughs> why I wanted to design a board I could surf like I want to surf. But as I get older and things get slower. Yeah. So that's kind of why. I started that route because I have one that's kind of like a Simmons and then it's smaller and smaller. Like it's a little bit more curve and contour yeah. and narrower. But not trying to make a short board into like a fun board. Just trying to make, a, you know, it's to me they ride like two, like a single fin. It's like a fin on each rail because the way the surface is of the board. So it's really like on your rail, which I like. It's not like... Um, a skateboardy twin fin. Right. Yeah. They have a lot of drive, and I love my favorite is a single fin, but a lot of aspects they don't, you know, they don't do what you want to do. Right. So those, they're having a fin on each rail panel, really like has a lot of drive. So. Um, the Elias that he introduced you to, like proper wood, old school. Oh, his, yeah, his ones. I think that Wagner. I don't the know. Wagner. Oh, I don't know right, him, right. but I think That's they, what they had that right. stamp on it or whatever. Gotcha. He was going to actually let me bring one home that he had, but um, never ended up. I think he thought he'd never see it again. Totally. So I got some in the back, but my thing with that was, you know, you couldn't surf a lot of places around here because you couldn't, you're not floating. You're pretty much swimming. Mm -hmm. So I started making them just with a little bit of foam with a veneer deck, like balsa deck. Mm -hmm. I got a couple I can show you with a carbon bottom with no stringer. So like... Still kept a pretty rigid flex and had fun with that. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, they're kind of brutal on your body yeah. ri riding them. They're kind of like, 
I still have split toenails from Oof. 20, uh, you know, like not riding it at all. Brutal. Yeah, because you, you know, it's so hard out of the wood. Totally. I was at that time in my life, I was going back there to start doing some boards, um, shaping and trying to, because a uh, wellman told me he's going to retire. I'm like, what's that? <laughs> no, <laughs> retire. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to figure out some way to make money. So, you know, I slowly started building up order shaping before he retired and that kind of that kind of helped and so I would go back there and you know build a handful of boards not in like 50 boards or something and then and then leave and so I think O'Neill carries them they're the only shop there Jason Ratboy Ratboy he got a few and made it really popular okay, okay. and um around around the Santa Cruz area I mean they're the easiest board to ride yeah that style of board but there's certain tricks to making them be a little bit more zippy okay I kind of have an amount of boards you know everything's theoretical right now because you don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring but kind of have an amount of boards that I need to pay my bills no I don't have nothing you know no save you know no like retirement but I'm just to do that allows me to sleep at night that I'm not making tons of boards and polluting, you know, because no matter what you say, you can recycle as much as there's a point where you can't recycle stuff, even though they say it's recycle a bowl. Like on Kauai, you can't recycle EPS. There's no place here. So are you going to pay to fill up a container to ship it somewhere to be recycled? Most people are not, you know. Definitely not. And like the resins that are organic, there's only so much vegetable oil in them to make them organic, but they're still using new product. So that depresses me about surfboard building. So I try to do just what I need to get by, kind of, which isn't a good business plan at all. No. At all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not at That's all. Fun. Yeah. Are your clients all locals or is, are there tourists coming to order boards? Yeah. Ready get get some people ordering boards or like on the, on the, on the what do you call that, message me, uh, Instagram or email, but not a lot. Most is local. Because obviously, like, if someone's going to the North Shore, they'll order, like, yeah. a Rawson or an yeah. Arakawa. Yeah, they'll order a board. I usually do better with time dates, like, when the board needs to be done. Yeah. The, do I, you? Yeah. little deadline. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice if there was a real good glass shop here. And we had a really nice operation, but the lady that owned the building was up in years, and she wanted to leave it to one of her nieces as like an heirloom. So they kicked everybody out, gutted it, made it all cherry. And so the only reason the shop was where it was because there was no houses around it before and it was industrial. And now houses are all around. So if we shut the door for more than a year, you lose that opportunity. And then it was a good time because people were kind of over. There was a boat builder back there and people kind of over smelling resin so it's kind of a good time but it was hard being in one hole for i mean i think mike and michelle you know started that shop really yeah and then i think michelle bailed on mike and then mike had it and mike was kind of like the same thing he glassed and he shaped but then when his friend left that shaped he had to start shaping so there's really talented, board, you know, glassers here. It's just, it's a hard, 
you know, it's not hard, but it is hard. You got to do it, you know, every day. Seems like a business opportunity. I mean, for somebody who's willing to, like, do the hard work. Yeah. No, there's definitely, there's definitely, like, bro, if you, if you, you know, all these guys, all these guys, you got, like, um, Mark Angel, you got, you know, Salas, and you got Shapers. If you did a pickup service, you'd kill it. Really? Well, Karen's. But that's if you could have, if your shop could be legal, you know. What's the... Legality on Kauai is kind of... Who knows what's going to go on now, but hypothetically yesterday or a month ago, yeah, glass shop would be awesome. I mean, what's the issue with the legality of that? I mean, could you... Oh, just licensing. I I think it's the... You know, just making sure your dust dust isn't escaping. Okay. But is it more difficult to set that up here than it is elsewhere? No. Oh, okay. They're friendly to business? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you just need to be... I think you can't like have a flood and have the dust go out in the water. You know? Yeah, 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 totally. That makes so no, sense. it's it, islands are hard, especially Kauai. There's one road; it's not connected, which is a good thing. But you're on the outskirts, so like to go somewhere, it takes a lot of time. You get stuck in traffic. You seen traffic around here? It's getting gnarly. Yeah, so I just want to get a you know a bicycle, but you can't. That's a that was awesome. I'd ride my bike to work every day. Can you explain what makes a good lamination? You got. I mean, you got to start with good stuff, good product, yeah. Okay. I mean, nobody wants to glass a lame board, but you know, like if the stringer's all high and everything, you got to spend ten minutes cleaning up the board before you ever start glassing. So, uh, tight, stretched, and have it go off fast. What do you mean by stretched? Well, I mean the theory before would be like you know pull the cloth tight, not so much have you know now people are just pouring resin on and letting it like totally soak into the foam so it's different and make you know get it heavier and let it sit don't have it go off super fast so it soaks into the board make it heavy solid but there's then you got guys that just want one layer four at you know at an angle 45 degree you know five foot roll and they want the flex so i mean the board's gonna fall apart and someone's gonna say it's a bad glass job but they have the best rides on it in their life kins that's my hard problem is understanding the customer like you got to talk story with them and try to understand what angle they're coming at because they might think oh the board had a bad glass job but it was just glass light it wasn't a bad glass job you know a board everything breaks right. i mean your cars break you don't go back to the guy and like, we broke my car you know so i mean when i was i remember i think josh palmer broke a board and he wanted to go back to talk to mike bosch you know about a bad glass job and i'm like <laughs> you're, you know you got it in a bad spot you know wasn't mm-hmm. the, so what makes a good glass job is every step being cherry you know from the laminating to the hot coating to you fi- you find a problem fix it before it goes to the sander i mean then you get involved in tints and colors and you know that's all aesthetic though yeah but there's methods to make it work and come out good like you, what you can look at a guy that does a tent and doesn't really care, and it looks abstract because he's hiding stuff. But you know, then there's guys that you can do a cut line and you can put a rapidograph pin line to, and that takes a lot of time to cut that right. You know, yeah. at the right time when the resins just to let the razor blade cut through it, but not tear. So, yeah, it's kind of this enchanting the way surfboards have gotten. So like, just you want them done and fold up, and now it's kind of coming back to it. People are taking a little bit of pride, it seems like, more pride in their work. Well, I think you could charge more now, too. Like, there's guys selling, you know, $1,000 short boards or close to it. 
they're taking the time to do all those things right and they look beautiful they're able to charge a premium and people are willing to pay it but everybody was working on the bro deal for 30 years you know and oh yeah it's still going strong <laughs> I know. especially places. especially in hawaii it's hard to um i mean people it's hard to live in a place where people come to play yeah. and then think about people trying to you know just like anywhere but a lot of people probably don't go to your backyard and hey you want to take off a week and cruise you know right. while you got to work um not that everything's fair in life as no. far as our situation we got ourselves into it but i wish i could give my work away and just get traded food and stuff like that you know i'm not really so i mean it's just yeah you gotta charge people get on me about charging too much for my longboards but i still think it's cheaper than the mainland but and it's hard i mean it's hard for all the board builders you got everything's got to come from somewhere exactly no one's making anything here so hence another reason why it's not a real good place to be a board manufacturer but there's shapers here so and there's surfers that needs need right, boards. Right. At this point, now that you're making your own boards, how often do you ride other shapers' surfboards? Only if someone has a board they like want me to copy. When I say copy, I'm not copying it. I'm like, look, you know, trying to see what they like about it, or get a board like it. So, some guy I have this parish in the back that he wanted to, you know, redo. So he says his favorite board. So I'm gonna try it. I mean, it looks. Hideous. I mean, it's a well-designed and well-made board. It's just like For a big, a big gun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Well, it's kind of like a old guy gun type of yeah. thing. So it looks all alligatory, like stretched out. But you know, he rides it and likes it. So, um, and let's see. Last board. I haven't ridden someone's board besides that one. Is it? I mean, I talked to some shapers who never ride anybody else's boards. They only ride their own. Because there's only so many days a week, and they want yeah. to obviously do the R and D. Yeah. But I would think that it would be important to kind of get out from your own little microscope. Oh, the last one, um, my friend, I think uh, Noe, you know Noe Kaulukakui. Yeah, up in so, Santa Cruz. Yeah, so he, his dad lives, his family lives out here. So I think I rode one of his intents because he rode my like we were surfing. Is he shaping boards? Noe. Yeah. No. Oh, he or might one of his might like once in a while like torture a piece of foam but um gotcha. not not gotcha. really i think jeff started making boards again so gotcha he was had one of his twin fins no i don't i don't have a prejudice against writing anybody's board but i think it would also expand your mind just seeing oh yeah it's nice it's nice when things that you kind of like left on the shelf or ideas and then you see somebody doing it and you're like oh that's nice you know yeah i'll try to get that hundred million dollar feel yeah. <laughs> Every time you surf. Uh, I feel like maybe on Instagram I saw, are you doing asymmetrical boards at all? Um, Yeah, before. Uh, that, guy, that guy that used to sand for us, Ernie, he was really into asymmetricals. He'd always get in like a nice board from Wellman or RB and then he'd hack the tail. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, way. and they would just lose it because he would just, you know, I don't know where he was grew up, but he always said somebody rode asymmetrical somewhere, I think, in San Diego. So he came, and this is way before the push. I mean, I know that what Carl Ekstrom made the asymmetrical. So he was doing that kind of stuff, like taking a round pin and hacking it, you know, like so his, you know, toe side and his rail side is different. Nothing of the design you see guys doing today with all the intricacies, but he was just doing it crude and he, he loved them. Really? Yeah. And he, I mean, that was all 
he I, I don't think he's still riding them he I think he rides boards from Scovo so I don't think he's still riding asymmetricals but um so what are what's your theory with them the ones that you've done uh they're they're neat uh one friend of mine um Yama he rides them like pretty all the time and he shreds on them it's pretty amazing and even like what they weren't designed for they work you know like how they theoretically shouldn't work that good like uses them gets them in some pretty weird spots and they hold what's your design theory behind them oh it was his actually he must have been looking at somebody's boards okay and so he came with a pretty detailed detailed idea of what he wanted and we've made like maybe i think four or five okay so i don't make a lot but I, I think that means, you know, it's, not, it's funny. Like some people that look at boards, they like it solely on how it looks. Some people like a board how it works. You know, some people can't wrap their head around stuff yeah. that looks weird. Right. And so it's um, everybody's a little different that way. Have you ridden them? Yeah. What's your What's your thought on it? Does it work? Oh yeah, they're they're they're, they're awesome. I, I kind of seriously less is more for me. Like I can get what I want out of a pretty basic board. Yeah. So, as far as um, I'll get stoked to go in and make one and make a board, but usually I'll always go back to what I know. Yeah. Is making me have fun. Um, final question for everybody is just what was the last board that you rode? Twin fin. I mean How? last board. Last board you rode. What show it to you? <laughs> Perfect. What's the size? What's five five. Probably like twenty. 20 wide two and a half thick pretty like rb rails pretty f like full fat tennis ball rail uh like swallowtail or yeah swallowtail okay. yeah um that was yeah it's kind of like a i wouldn't say it's a takeoff but steve liss like when i was glassing boards on the north shore he turned me on the keel fence because that was all about the time i started shaping for rb and then I was asking him like about the you know the the double foiled you know all the fins that guys are really into, and he he's like look, this works 100% better, and they didn't get better till we made them thin. And he gave me my first set of keels to put on a fish, and um, yeah it was it was it was fun. You know he comes down and stays every year with his wife down here and surfs. So it's nice to see him. He's still surfing. Was he right that it works 100% better? Uh, when you say percent, you know, it's kind of like people say a million percent, a thousand percent. It works <laughs> more than 50% better. Okay, gotcha. I mean, I've, I mean, I've rode ones that are good, double foil, and they're nice, and you, you got to dance them a certain way. But when you put when you put a little cant on the fin and put a better foil on the board, things really light up. Yeah. So you can either be stuck in first and second, or you can be in, you know, fifth gear. <laughs> you know, so there's a definite definite performance factor that you're limiting but some people want that you know it's not so like what works for me might not float your boat you know right well thank you Lance appreciate it thank you you're welcome I hear it like a pound's upon a pico look at what the light did now I bear it like a bounce upon a pico look at what the light did now
Lance Ebert is at Ebert underscore surfboards on Instagram. Drop into his comments and tell him that you heard him here. I'll post a link to that on surfsplendorpodcast.com along with a photo of Max Medeiros with his Ebert Bonzer and everything that Bronson Lovell and I discussed in this episode. Um, I truly appreciate all of them embracing this concept and welcoming me into their communities and their homes to discuss all of this. It was the result of various mutual friends facilitating and vouching for me and helping organize all of our schedules. And when I said at the beginning that this series was made possible by the Aloha Exchange, I'm sure that um, you recognize that that's true in theory, but it's actually literally true. The owner, Jamie Dilberg, who I published an episode with in February, that's episode number 310, he offered me a guest room, a free place to stay, and without having that, I would not have scheduled this trip to Kauai. Further, Jamie helped me make connections with guys like Lance Ebert, so when I talk about this podcast being a community effort, I do mean that literally. This series was made possible by the Aloha Exchange, and as I mentioned at the beginning, They are a small local retailer on Kauai with two locations, and you can imagine that they are definitely hurting due to this COVID crisis, but they are still doing work to support local families by donating $5 from every online order to a local family in need. To activate that, you'll need to use the promo code ALOHAKAUAI with no spaces, no capitals, You'll save $5 on your order, and then $5 from your order will be donated. And you can do that right now on thealohaexchange.com. And of course, be sure to visit their stores next time you are on the island of Kauai. And again, this podcast network receives the largest portion of our support from listeners. For this episode alone, in addition to plane tickets and rental cars, there were over 40 production hours devoted to prep, recording, editing, writing scripts, So your support services those efforts and expenses. You can support us via Venmo at Surf Splendor or on PayPal. We have a donation button on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate where you can find that PayPal stuff. Any and all donations, regardless of size, that come through in the month of April will be entered into a raffle to win a custom surfboard shaped by Jeff Tim Pony on Maui. He'll build a Maui Leaf Light construction in honor of Earth Day this month. The Maui Leaf Light construction starts with either a recycled EPS blank or a PU blank made in U.S. Blank's solar-powered factory in Southern California. It's then laminated in hemp cloth and bio-based resin. I have a 5.8 in this exact construction that I got back in October of 2018. So I've been riding this board for a year and a half. I brought it with me and surfed it on Kauai last month. Uh, I love the board. It barely has any heel dents in it. The thing has held up beautifully. And that would probably be the number one rule of sustainability in surfboards is longevity. So I'll link to Timponi Surfboards and Maui Leaf Light. And you can see more of that stuff on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate, where you can also enter to win the board. Consider setting up a monthly recurring donation, but any donation will get you entered. We'll pick one winner at random on May 1st. I'll put you in contact with Jeff Timponi, and he'll build the board custom to your specs. Super cool of the Timponi family to support us in this way. And I hope that you are well and still employed during this COVID chaos. 
Hopefully you're enjoying the Tiger King in-between podcast. That is the greatest find of quarantine. That is what I will remember quarantine for, is the Tiger King. But if you listen to the news, I know that this really does feel like end times. So I think it's important just to hear someone say and to know that this will all be over eventually. Hang in there. Have some perspective that this will all be a distant memory. And um, I think that should help you to really enjoy this rare gift of time and commune with those closest to you. So enjoy it. I'll be back on Friday with uh, Chas Smith for an episode of The Grit. And then on Tuesday with Scott Bass for an episode of Spit. And then right back here on Wednesday for Surf Splendor with Kauai board builder Papa Sal. Until then, this is David Scales reminding you to stay six feet away from everyone for two weeks. And of course, shred on. Look at what the light did now. Look at what the light did now.